Thank you so much. Yes, my name is Herb. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is February 21st, 1984. That was a gift and a blessing and a story for a different day. Welcome really to this time together, this gathering of people who are interested in at the very heart of the matter, a spiritual awakening. I'm, I'm assuming that you're familiar with that term because it's the term from step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That's the entire purpose. That's the bullseye. That's the mission of doing the steps, of joining a 12-step fellowship. Hello, 12-step fellowship. It's a fellowship of people, a community of people that support each other on this journey. And it's a difficult journey. I mean, we're in the 12-step fellowship because we found our life difficult. Yes, absolutely. Most people come to a 12-step program almost involuntarily because, in fact, they come from suffering. And they've tried many things, easier, softer ways by normal definitions. Um, and they just haven't worked. That's totally my experience. As most of some of you know, I studied to be a Catholic priest for seven years. I was in a seminary monastery for seven years, and it was silent. Can you imagine a 17-year-old going into an environment that was silent for the, for the balance of his development? 17 to 24. But I didn't find what I was looking for there. And then I tried psychology. I thought if I couldn't heal your soul, I might be able to bring some type of soothing to your psyche. I know now that both of those were corrupt motives underneath the underneath, which I didn't know at that time because of the lack of consciousness the corrupt mode of being prestige, admiration, recognition, and in the case of psychology, a profession that would provide me an abundance of money. <laughs> I didn't know any of that when I was, in fact, going into these things. And, and those of you who have been exposed to me at all know that I have regularly said, I didn't know that I didn't know, and I couldn't see that I didn't see. And I don't say that for poetry's sake. I say that as a humble way of acknowledging my own actual experience and journey. So here you are, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, wherever you are in the world today. We have an international demographic, fortunately, with the Zoom outreach and capacity. Why? No, no, seriously, I'm asking you to ask yourself, why are you here? Why are you giving up your precious 
time on a Saturday or Sunday if you're in, uh, in the Australia time zone. Why are you doing this? What brings you to this? I mean, the flyer says we're going to be together from 10 to 1. And most of you know, if you have any experience with me on this series, I stay for another hour. So we're really talking about a potential uh, commitment of four hours. And we're going to be talking about walking into Death Valley. Into the very bottom of the pit. We started that journey last month, looking at resentments. I consider that to be the first half of step four because it takes so much time and it's so much effort and it's very analytical. It was recorded that four hour, uh, I think, in-depth exploration with some wonderful, vulnerable, courageous sharing in the Q&A um, at the end of it, especially, which is what we'll replicate today. But we're going to continue that journey today, looking at fear and the underlying nature and cause and source and solution. That's the part of this journey that some people leave out. We're, we're, we're going into the darkness but in order to dissipate it and find the light. Uh, Bill, Bill knew that. That's why in the early part of the big book, right after he gives us some experience with alcoholism, he gives us a chapter. There is a solution. And it paints a picture that yes, we're looking deeply at the darkness in order to bring some light and walk toward the light. In fact, he frequently uses the metaphor sunlight of the spirit. So why are you here? What do you want? What do you need? What do you expect? What do you hope to experience? These are not throwaway questions. These are my prompting to you, my suggestions to you to be engaged in this journey with us today. When you ask these questions, it prepares you to be open and to receive information that will convert to an experience. I'm gonna put up some slides. This is where we're going. We're searching. Maybe fearless, but maybe fear-filled. Our own history. A moral inventory, it says. Notice the words. I'm a word person. Bill was a word person. I'm a big book literalist and fundamentalist. I want to know what Bill meant by these words in his time when he's writing this book in 1938, publishing it in 1939. I use dictionaries from that time and quite frankly, from the early 1900s, as well as from the current time, because meanings of words change based on culture and application. What does moral mean? 
Well, it means value. It comes from the Latin word mores, M-O-R-E-S, I believe, which means value. What is my sense of beliefs and motives and values? I'm going to inventory that because something's amiss in me. Something's amiss in me. But what is it? I've asked you to ask yourself some questions. This was a methodology I got experientially in that hospital program that my wife was in in 1984. I went to support her and I got caught in the draft because I got some information. They asked me some questions. What is your history with alcohol? As part of a support development to her recovery so that I would know. And they gave me some information about the genetic nature and the family disease and lots about more about alcoholism and the symptoms and the signs. Well, when I finally got that information and I took some action, you see, I hope you have pen and paper because I'm going to ask you periodically through this journey today some questions that are not rhetorical. Some of them will be, meaning for you to think about it and ponder and write later on. But some of them will be questions for you to take seriously right now as we are going through this journey. And that action is important because it will give you an experience. It will take you from your head, the information, to your heart, the experience. But then it'll raise more questions. When I discovered that I had a problem with alcohol, I had to say, well, now what? What now? Over the time I've been on this journey, I've come across this with saying from Einstein, the consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. I love wisdom sayings like that. That's such a delicious, deep, dense idea. The consciousness, my own thinking, that created the problem, my own life, cannot be the consciousness, that's not the source of the solution that solves the problem because any solution that my warped mind comes up with will have a warp in it. And you're familiar with that concept even if you're not familiar with this saying. And so I ask you to pray with me now a prayer that is not a, an official prayer. It's a prayer that was suggested to me at 10 years of sobriety. I won't go into the background, it's not important now. But this man looked at page 58 with me in the big book. He was taking me through the steps and this was his first instruction. We jumped right to this line at the bottom of page 58. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. He had said to me, Herb, you have a lot of information, 
but you have very little transformation. You have lots of information and you've had some spiritual awakening. But you're lacking a real sense of what the spiritual malady is, what the unmanageability is, what the really source of the problem is, what the bedevilments are in your life. Those bedevilments that create your codependency, your, the, 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 those bedevilments that create the strings that make you a puppet to circumstances and people. Those bedevilments that lead you to be restless, irritable, and discontent. I heard it. And I began then to use a variation on this. It's taken time to wordsmith it. Today, it's this is the articulation. I'm actually working on changing it. And I will be changing it for the next series of workshops I do beginning in July. I've been challenged many times about the word brokenness. And I can explain it. I'm not going to do that right now <clears throat> in terms of my thinking about it. It's a great word. I, I've extended my work from alcoholics to anybody in a 12-step program and then historically to anybody that's interested in the spiritual life and human development and awakening. Whether they're addicts or not, whether they're in a 12-step fellowship or not. And that's based on Bill Wilson's comment in the preface to the very first edition. That preface to the first edition is in your current edition. I'm assuming you have the fourth edition because it was published in 2001 and most everybody has it by now. But the fourth, excuse me, the first, the, the preface to the first edition is in every edition. And I really suggest that you take a look at it. It's a page and a half. But in the first paragraph, the very first paragraph of the preface to the very first printing, the last line says, prophetically, our way of living may have its advantages for all. Our way of living our relationship with the light may have its advantages for all, all human beings, not just all alcoholics, not just all addicts, but all human beings. Because Bill was addressing unmanageability, the second half of the first step. That spiritual malady, which is the crux of the problem. The first half of the first step is the presenting problem, as they would say professionally. It's the source of our suffering that brings us into a 12-step program or therapy or religion or a good, strong relationship or some form of resolution solution. The first half of the first step, addiction. I'm broadening it from just alcohol. Addiction. That compulsive behavior, repetitive, over which we have no control that leads to negative consequences. I'm not a professional. I'm not credentialed. I'm not certified. I don't have a degree in anything other than my undergraduate degree in psychology. I have lots of exposure and lots of training and lots of experience. And that's where I come from. Please join me together if you choose to. 
I have no rules. Those of you who know me know that. That's one of my central mantras. I have no rules. I adopt the culture of Bill Wilson and the 12-step fellowship as he determined it. No rules, no regulations, no laws, no dogma, no mandates, only suggestions. And he said in an interview, there are only two disciplines in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's brilliant because of its simplicity. There are only two disciplines in Alcoholics Anonymous. One is alcohol and the other is God. And you're either going for one or you're going for the other. Oh my God. Number one, is it simple, but is it challenging? You see, my metaphor is the dimmer switch. It's either going up or it's going down. It doesn't stay still. And that's why in the transition into step 10 from step nine on pages 84 and 85, he said, we enter the world of the spirit and we're not cured. Although we're placed in a position of neutrality with regard to our addiction. You can read this material. It's very dense. Spend some time on it. Outline it. 84 and 85. We enter the world of the spirit. We are placed in a position of neutrality, but we're not cured. You see, he was talking there about unmanageability. He was talking there about the spiritual malady. He was talking there about those bedevilments. He was talking there about that restless, irritable, and discontent. Sober, abstinent, weeks, months, years, decades and suffering. What's the source of the suffering? You're welcome to pray. Out loud is what I recommend. You're all on mute. You won't hear one another at this, at this juncture. Or, or silently, that's okay too. Or not at all, as long as you, I'm encouraging you to have the attitude of open mind, open heart, that I'm really going to set aside. I'm going to ask the spirit of the universe to set aside because I want to set it aside, but I know I can't set it aside because I don't have the willpower essentially to do what is necessary effectively. That's really the point. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. That's the point of unmanageability. I want to have an open mind and heart, but I don't have even the insight to know what that means. So I'm asking for intervention, spiritual intervention. Please bring your crowbar, <laughs> I like to lighten it up a little bit, and open up my mind and my heart. And join me, at least in attitude in this prayer. God, please set aside everything that I think I know about myself, my brokenness, my spiritual power. And you, for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and especially you.
Thank you. And, and I teased you with the thought that I might be changing this prayer. I'm in discernment right now. But just to let you know where I'm currently at, I'm currently thinking that I'm going to change it, my brokenness to my unmanageability. Unmanageability, that second half of the first step. So that we stay very connected to the big book and my interpretation of the experience of the second half of the first step. So again, ask yourself some more questions. Where is my life not working? How effective have my efforts been? Do I really want to change? Oh my, that's a pretty intimidating thought about change. Most of us want to control, and I put that in quotes, our life and the circumstances around it. It's a delusion, but we don't know that until we do a fourth step or some other form of excavation that leads us to the truth about reality. Reality is not negotiable. Reality is not personal. Reality is not changeable. It's immutable. Reality, it just is. It's not good or bad. It's not right or wrong. No, reality itself, how it's handled by people is healthy or unhealthy, appropriate or inappropriate. How it's handled by yourself could be right or wrong for you. But life as it is, that's the serenity prayer. I've, I've, I've jettisoned the word control, as most of you know. I don't use it. I try not to use it in any of my language because it's a delusion. We don't have any control outside of ourselves or inside of ourselves. No control. The sun will rise in the east and it will set in the west. It doesn't matter what we think or feel or want. The law of physics is gravity. Things will fall to the earth. Heavy things will fall to the earth a hundred times out of a hundred times. And there are, there are human universal principles the same as gravity. Honesty, simplicity, consideration, integrity, fidelity. Very loaded words, and yet they capture principles that are universal. They're non-negotiable. They're immutable. And if we transgress these principles, we will be crushed. That's why step 12 is brilliant. Practice these principles in all our affairs. What change would I like? Today, be specific. If you have pen and paper, I really encourage you to write something down. What one or two behaviors not, not, not necessarily feelings or thoughts or attitudes, although that's good too. What behaviors, and you can be specific, would you want to change? I love this word. It's the word I use every morning at the conclusion of my morning quiet time and meditation. What is the invitation today? I'm currently in a mode where I'm uh, reviewing my year and uh, the next five. So I'm actually looking at what is the invitation for this next year, 
Yes, 2022, I'm already looking at it. And for the next five years, I'm hoping I'll be around and competent. What's the invitation? I retired in 2006. I've dedicated my personal time and my personal life to carrying this message to other people. And it's broadened beyond my imagination because of the Zoom technology. One of the gifts of the pandemic. What is the invitation? What is my personal invitation? It's as unique as my fingerprint. It's as unique as my DNA. You see, here we go now into the fourth step. We have beliefs. These are the glasses that we wear. Notice it's in blue. The, the, the color behind belief is in blue because that's the color of our lenses. That's what it's meant to signify. And when our lenses are blue, the world is blue. We have a perception because of these lenses. And if the lenses are warped, our perception is delusional. If the, if the belief is warped, the thought will be demented. If the belief, the lenses are colored or distorted or delusions or illusions, the feelings that come from this chain of triggered events in ourselves will be diseased. Our attitudes will be warped, distorted. And obviously, bam, our behavior will be dysfunctional. Yes, I do like alliteration. I think it becomes memorable when we see it this way and hear it this way. But notice, step four doesn't look at our beliefs directly because we can't see the lenses through which we're looking. We cannot see the lenses through which we're looking because we're looking through the lens. But as I've approached step four and interpreted it broadly, creatively, stepping outside of and expanding the suggestions in the big book, I believe we look at the lens. We look at the unconscious. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that now without any hesitations. I used to hesitate because I don't like to talk too much about things that I'm not trained to talk about. But this is now my experience. I, I penetrate the unconscious through the step four tools that the big book provides us as interpreted by the men who took me through the steps. And now I look at the lens, but I look at it through the optics of my behavior. How am I behaving? And then I go to my attitude. Then I go to my feelings. Then I go to my thoughts. Then I go to my perceptions so that I can get to my beliefs and see that they're delusional. I was so embarrassed. Step one is about powerlessness and we become brain dead to that word. So I suggest to you adopting another word. The word I use is no choice. No choice about the substance, no choice about the process. 
substance. For me, it's alcohol. Others, it's drugs. Others, it's food. That's the substance part. The process is a little trickier, a little more subtle, a little more sophisticated. It's all sourced in the brain dysfunction. Science is in hot pursuit of confirming that. Only one out of 10 people are alcoholic in North America. Five out of 10 people are impacted by that one out of 10 people. So not everybody is addict. Not everybody has a affliction of addiction. But every human being has the defect of unmanageability. It's built into us. My will, Bill says on page 62, my will, my free will is not free. On page 62, he says, selfishness, death, self-centeredness, exclamation point, that is the root of our trouble. That's what we're talking about. Step four is not about addiction. We've, we've way, way, we journeyed way past addiction after we leave step one. The last time we talk about addiction in any serious manner, the first half of step one, in fact, by the time we end page 43, but then we go into chapter four and five and we look at unmanageability. Not because Bill focused it that way, but he certainly uncovered it for us. And it took another person, the third person I went through the steps, to unpack the, the nuggets in chapter four and chapter five that disclosed to me unmanageability. You could look at my assignments that are on the website or my way of life document that's on the website and, and match those up. <laughs> The assignments will take you through the steps one through 12. Took me a minimum of six months and a maximum of two years going over the steps four different times with four different men in a 20 year period. But I was able to have an experience with step one that was full bodied. I understand the problem of the deficiency of my body, of my mind, and of my will. Those bedevilments. I am having trouble with personal relations. I can't control my emotional nature. These are on page 52 of the big book. They are the description of the spiritual malady. They are the description of unmanageability. They are the description of what we're not cured of. Not cured, page 85 not cured. We have a daily reprieve. I am a prey to misery and depression. I can't make a living. I added that satisfies me. I have a feeling of uselessness. I am full of fear. I am unhappy. I can't seem to be of real help to other people. And uh, meditation revealed that I didn't really care about helping people. I wanted the reputation of helping people, which was again reinforcing what I was discovering in a therapy that I was using as an additional resource to support the work I was doing in the 12 steps. And the therapist introduced me to the whole notion of narcissism. It's in the way of life document. You can see that personality disorder and the nine characteristics. This 
therapist that I was paying good money to said to me, the only thing missing in the DSM, that's that diagnostic manual, the only thing missing, the nine characteristics describe it, but the thing that's missing, Herb, is your picture. You know, he, he smiled when he said it. I came across a, a, a quote, or maybe I heard it in a meeting. An alcoholic, I'm going to substitute the word addict. An addict is quite capable of such feelings as affection, caring, and love. These feelings just do not involve anyone else. A wonderful bullseye on narcissism. And so we need a power. If you've done the step work, step two invites us to make a decision. Page 53, God is or God isn't, what is your choice? It's a decision about power. My concept, though, you see, as I opened up our discussion today, there's no dogma here. There's no theology here. There's no requirements here. There's no mandates here. Please hear this. That's the spirit of the 12-step culture. Ask yourself, have I made a decision about power? You don't need to use the word God. It's a synonym. It's a simple way of capturing our need for and desire for a relationship with the universe and the power in it. Thomas Merton quoted somebody else, I believe, when he said, God is that reality that has no circumference and whose center is everywhere. Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk, died in 1968, a brilliant writer, prolific author, probably a mystic and a prophet. God is that reality that has no circumference and whose center is everywhere. You could look up the words, they're $100 words that would help you understand that phrase, transcendence and imminence. A subject for another day. But at the heart of it, bottom line, what's your decision about power? Is there power sufficient to help you? Is that power available to you? Does that power reside deep inside yourself? Read page 55. Bill answers the questions from page 45. Where and how are we going to find that power? Where and how? And on page 55, in two redundant, apparently redundant paragraphs, he said, think honestly, search diligently, search fearlessly. Oh, that's how deep down inside of you. Oh, that's where, and that's only where you're going to find this power. Have you found? Have you discovered? Have you made a decision, which is the faith decision? No certitude, no knowledge, no feeling, no emotion, just an empty and invisible and dark and thin and insubstantial decision. God is. And then, have you made the decision that you're invited to in step three? For a relationship, if this power, this sunlight of the spirit, 
this sunlight, I'm staying with that metaphor throughout today, that sunlight of the spirit deep down inside of me is there, if it is there, do you want a relationship with it? Bill suggests that on pages 62 and 63. He doesn't say it in the simple words that I'm using, but he gives us five relationships there. You can look it up. Five relationships. So I'm assuming it's a decision for a relationship with power. This is a decision for a relationship and alignment. Because step three is a decision to turn. We hear many interpretations of step three, one of which is surrender. I used to use that because it sounded cool. It sounded like a great insight. So I would mouth that in with sponsees and in meetings until I realized that it wasn't true. Step three is not about surrender, anything but. Step three is the antithesis of surrender. Surrender is a great word for step one. Bill in the big book doesn't use the word surrender. Nowhere in the first 164 pages is the word surrender, by the way. But it's a good word for step one because I'm completely defeated and I give up. White flag. I surrender. I give up. I've conceded to my innermost self, it says on page 30. That is step one. Concede to my innermost self. Much stronger than the words of step one on page 30, uh, 59. Page 30. Concede to my innermost self. The delusion that I am like other people or ever will be has to be smashed. Woo. Bill is not gentle. That's step one. That crushing of realization that I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice over my addiction. I don't have a choice of managing my life. And yet I am fully responsible for my addiction and to manage my life. I'm faced with a tremendous conundrum here. A problem. What's the solution? Of course, Bill says there is a solution. A relationship with power. I use the term alignment. Those of you who have seen my step three presentation are aware of that word. It's not in the big book again, but it absolutely, from my current uh, experience, captures the dynamic of what step three is and alignment and steps four through nine are looking at my behavior out of alignment, the source of my suffering. When I'm in alignment, I'm in the flow and there is no suffering. Oh, there's pain, huge difference. Life is difficult, said the author of The Road Less Traveled. That's his first line, memorable. Life is difficult. Yep, amen. But there's a flow to it. And if we go across the flow, we suffer. If we go against the flow, we suffer. So we need to get into the flow and go with the flow, not in the sense of passive. Step three, listen to it, please. Made a decision to turn. 
It's ferociously assertive. I make a decision with my free will to turn, to commit to turn, and my experience is a commitment to be turned. That's why the set-aside attitude in prayer is so important. I can make the commitment to turn, but in every step, four through nine, underneath it, Bill implies or states specifically, as he does in the fourth step, that we're powerless. Powerless over our resentment, so we pray. Powerless over our fear, so we pray. Powerless over our sex ideal and living up to it, so we pray. Powerless over our dishonesty and secrets, and so we pray. I'm not speculating. It's in the book. Literally, those lines about powerlessness over and the solution of prayer is in resentment and fear and the sex inventory. But we start with the prayer of consent. I call it the prayer of consent because I'm inviting the spirit with my will and my consciousness, I need to and want to turn. But with the experience of step one and the implications of steps two and three, up till now, I know that I can't even affect that to the degree that is necessary on my own power. Bill says it on page 45, lack of power is our dilemma. Lack of power is our dilemma. And on page 63, he ends the unmanageability description. Page 62, sorry. On page 62, he ends the unmanageability discussion, at least by the way I unpack the big book. In the same way, he ends the addiction discussion on page 43. On page 43, addressing the first half of the first step, he says the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. That's about addiction. That's his conclusion to his commentary and suggestions with regard to the first half of the first step. By my interpretation, a similar conclusion to the second half of the first step, unmanageability, is on page 62, where Bill says, neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We are self-centered, he speculates, and that's the source of our unmanageability, and that's the source of our problem of addiction. Do you hear the, the chain of events? Addiction's not our problem. Oh, it is a problem, please. Of course it is. That's why we're all here as the presenting problem. But once we get some understanding of this journey, we see that although addiction is a problem, the problem is unmanageability, the spiritual malady. Bill confirms it on page 64. From it, the spiritual malady, stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have been not only mentally and physically ill, 
first half of the first step, mental and physical. We have been spiritually sick, unmanageability, second half of the first step. When the spiritual malady is overcome, unmanageability, we straighten out mentally and physically. Well, that really explains why Bill says on page 85, we're not cured and we have a daily reprieve, not from our addiction. We have a daily reprieve from our unmanageability, which gives us a daily reprieve from our addiction. This is not subtle stuff. This is the best kept secret in the rooms. That 10, 11, and 12 is our way of life. 10, 11, and 12 is the source of a daily reprieve. 10 in which we spot check inventory during the day to identify the clouds in us that block us from the sunlight. Step 11, first instruction, inventory. At night, reviewing how we went through the day and how we might have missed our step 10 opportunities, but we get a chance now to have a plan to, cor to correct that. And then in the morning, asking for guidance as to how to live our life and perhaps correct yesterday's mistakes. And then step 12, living on principles. Those immutable guidelines for life. Living by principles to be in alignment with the flow of reality as it is, not as we see it. Not as we want it. Not as we feel it should be. Because quite frankly, our shoulds are irrelevant. Yes, really. Life just what is, and it doesn't really care. Life does not care about our shoulds, our feelings, our knowledge, our opinions, our conclusions. If it's unrealistic, we will be crushed. Eventually, if not immediately. Page 62, neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We're as powerless over our self-centeredness as we are over our addiction. Guidelines to live by. I'm going to ask you to pray the third step prayer with me. And again, you're welcome to pray it out loud. You're welcome to pray it just to yourself. You're welcome not to pray it, but to have in mind that you want to have a relationship. Ask yourself, what relationship do I yearn to have? Mm -hmm. That's the question in step three from my standpoint. Yearn, what a great word. It's not in the big book, but what a great word. Juicy. My soul yearns for something. I went into the monastery. I didn't find it. Not their fault. I went into therapy and the study of psychology because I had a yearning. I didn't find it. Not their fault. I did all the human development stuff of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s to scratch an itch that I had all my life that I became conscious of at nine or 10 years old. I didn't find it. I came into AA and I was dedicated. I got a sponsor. I 
called him every day, every day for at least 10 years. I called him and I went to a meeting every day, every day, sometimes two a day when I was having problems in my life because I had an itch I couldn't scratch. And I didn't find it. I didn't find it. I was restless, irritable, and discontent five years sober until I found a man who took me through the work mechanically, as I've given you just a Reader's Digest version of today and any time I've done the steps with you. But the only way you can really experience it is to do the work yourself with a guide, a sponsor or a step guide. And then I found it. I didn't know that I found it until way after I found it and I was looking back over my shoulder and I could see that I was converted from a seeker to a finder. Seeking is really good. Finding is way better. And I've been seeking and finding ever since. So I have no rules. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer of consent antiphonally. Some of you have had that exposure with me. What does it mean, Herb? It means what we did in the, in the monastery. In the chapel on one side, the monks would pray a prayer, sing a song, sing a line, and the monks on the other side would respond. That's antiphonal prayer. Antiphonal. Anti meaning back and forth, phonal meaning sound, like a tennis match going back and forth. I will lead you in the prayer. I will pray a word or a phrase, and then you will pray it out loud. I'm, I'm inviting you to pray it out loud in a minute. I'm going to ask Rainey to uh, unmute everybody so that we can actually hear, and it stays in line because I'm leading it. There's no cacophony here. I will pray just a short word or phrase, and then you pray it. At when I pause. And then I'll pray the next word or phrase, and then you pray it. If we were in a room together, as I have been many times with some of you, we would stand in a circle in the room, and we would hold hands, and we would have a little meditation. That reminds me I'll do that. And then we would pray the prayer. It's a wonderful community experience if you want to play. I'm going to read a meditation. This is the step three promises. There are promises in each step. Maybe part of the challenge for you would be to find the promises of each step. Oh, all of us are very aware of the promises of the ninth step on pages 83 and 84. That's wonderful set of promises, but there are promises in every step. Look at the promises in uh, step three on page 63. When we sincerely took this position, meaning having this new relationship, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new relationship. I'm going to substitute some words to make it relevant. Being all-powerful, God provides what we need. Notice it says, God provides what we need, not what we want. That's not subtle. Tremendous amount of impact and, me and, and meaning. Being all-powerful, God provides what we need if we keep close to God and perform God's work well. I'm a big book, literalist and fundamentalist. Well, what does that mean? 
if we keep close to God. Oh, prayer and meditation, step 11. And perform God's work well. Now, what, what does that mean? Oh, step 12, helping other people, especially by carrying this message. So maybe we could read it this way. Being all-powerful, God will provide what I need if I continue to do steps 11 and 12. That's not a stretch. I believe that's a literal translation of what is meant here in these promises. Established on such a footing, this new relationship, we became less and less interested in ourselves. Hear that dimmer switch. My favorite metaphor for the process of the 12 steps. The dimmer switch is either going up or it's going down. Remember Bill Wilson? There are only two disciplines. One is God and one is alcohol. The dimmer switch is either going up toward the light or it's going down toward the darkness. And there's no pause. There's no stopping it. We lean into that dimmer switch with 10, 11, and 12, resisting its retreat backwards and pushing it gently one notch at a time forward. We became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, hear the promise, but hear the process. As we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of God's presence, Bill calls step three the beginning. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter, we are reborn. What a promise. We are given a new life. We are reborn. We get to start fresh. I have uh, changed the third step prayer to make it more current. I've eliminated these and those. And so I invite you to pray it antiphonally as I pray it, one word, one phrase at a time. In the consciousness of your decision about power, what is it for you? In the consciousness of your decision for a relationship of caring with that power, a caring relationship with a caring power. What is that relationship that you've intended and committed to? Be aware of that as you pray this prayer. God. 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 I offer myself to you. I offer myself to you. To build with me. Build, build, build with, me. with me and to do with me and to, and to do, do with me as you wish as you, you wish. wish relieve me of the bondage of self relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will that I may better do your will Take away my difficulties. Take away my difficulties. That victory over them. That victory over them. May bear witness. May bear witness. 
those I would help. To those I would help. Of your power. Of your power. Your love. Your love. And your way of life. And your way of life. May I do your will always. May I do your will always. All right, let's pray it in unison, and there will be some awkwardness to it out loud, but that's okay. That's what would happen in a room. Be patient with yourselves and with others, and we'll pray it in unison all together today. God, I offer myself to you. Build with me and do with me as you wish. Leave me of the bondage of self. Make me of the bondage of self. Victory over the May bear witness to those that will help. Your power, your love, your way of life, and your will always. Are you hurting cats? <laughs> you're, you're wonderful, wonderful. You know, I didn't know that the uh, context would take us as long as it has, but I hope it's been helpful to lay the groundwork because, in fact, we're in the bondage of addiction, we're in the bondage of self. Those, that's the two halves of the first step. And I, I meant to get a really solid platform for us to take a look at what Bill calls the spiritual arch through which we'll walk to a new freedom. All right. The foundation, of course, is step one, complete defeat, as I mentioned. Step two, that willingness, which is the cornerstone. Step three, that decision to turn, which is the keystone. But then, of course, to do step five is the next time he mentions the spiritual arch through which we walk to a new freedom on page 75. He doesn't mention the resentment as the building block, the fear, the sex, the dishonesty and secrets. These are the building blocks to freedom. Yes, we're in bondage to addiction. Yes, we're in bondage to unmanageability, the bondage of self. But this is the freedom. But notice pathetic Herbie here is still in jail by his perceptions because he's holding the bars in front of his face, but there's no floor. There's no walls. There's no ceiling. He needs to drop the bars. And that's the whole point of step four. We have a biology, of course, which is our, the beginning of our story, family culture, emotions and experiences, psychology and education, in order to get to the true self, what is the meaning of me? Who am I? What is the true self? What is the authentic self? And I need to deconstruct that Hollywood storefront. I need to remove that mask, that persona that I've developed. It's not my fault. It's my human nature that develops these survival mechanisms. Today, they call them unhealthy coping strategies. And you've seen these nesting dolls in the gift stores, perhaps. This doll that comes out of the Russian culture. 
where they're all inside of one another and they're all complete duplicates. But we don't know that we don't know that we have a Hollywood storefront that we've created. These are the obstacles to the power in us. These are the clouds in us to the sunlight of the spirit. This resentment, this fear, this sex, these dishonesty, secrets, guilt, and shame. And that's what we identified in resentments when we did that work. We listed them. We look at the reasons for them. We looked at the distorted beliefs, the lenses through which we look. And we looked in the fourth column at our responsibility. And hopefully you had my experience or an experience like mine, which was to come to grips with the uh, that I'm 100% responsible for my resentments. Well, 100% responsible. I don't have a part in my resentment. I'm fully responsible for my resentments, 100%. But now we're going to go on and take a look at the fear and the sex and the dishonesty. Let's take a look at fear in the big book. It suggests that we make a list. Put down one fear that you have right now. One or two fears that you have right now that are interfering with the quality of your life. The big book suggests that on page 67, that we do this inventory. He said, it's the thread that is the fabric of our existence. On page 66, it says, we reviewed these fears thoroughly. We put them on paper. We asked ourselves why we had them. I actually don't have a worksheet. It's so simple. Make a list. Ask, why do I have it? Ask yourself right now, why do I have that fear? Now, the man who took me through the work had me do this basic work. And then he said, and then ask of your answer, what's underneath that? What fear comes up when you list that? I have a fear of, this is fictitious, just to give an example here. I have a fear of large dogs. I don't, but... Let's go with the example as a teaching moment. I have a fear of large dogs. Why do I have it? Well, because I was attacked when I was three years old and I was in the hospital as a result of that encounter. Oh, well, that explains that I have a trauma that I need to deal with and perhaps identifying the source and the reason for the trauma will eliminate it, or I can at least work with a professional to eliminate it. A behavioral psychologist can eliminate these kinds of fears that have come from trauma of the kind I've just mentioned pretty readily in a week or two. I mean, in five or 10 sessions. There's only two fears, as I understand it, from professionals, two natural fears. One is the fear of falling, and the other is the fear of loud noises. Every other fear is acquired. The good news is if it's acquired, it can be extinguished. That's a professional term for the elimination of the fear. Not easy. This man said, 
ask yourself what fear comes up when you have a, a, a fear of honesty, for instance. Uh, this is real now. This was one of my fears, a fear of honesty. Well, if I'm transparent and I let you know what I'm thinking, feeling, and behaving, then you're going to have your own impression of me. And I want to control in the old days. I wanted to control your image of me and the image I projected out to be who I wanted you to think I am, and maybe even to be who I thought I was. Because I was delusional and I didn't know I was delusional, which is the definition of delusion. It's not something that I'm conscious of necessarily. Usually I'm very unconscious. I really do believe that I'm special and I'm unique and I'm exempt and I'm and it manifests in my grandiosity and in my callousness toward you. And I had the attitude that I'm going to get what I want. And if you get hurt, that's collateral damage. That's real for me. So when I'm unpacking honesty, I could see, well, I didn't, I wanted you to think of me the way I wanted you to think of me. And then he said, well, ask yourself what fear comes up. If in fact you go further than that, if you are transparent, well, if in fact they see who I am, they will reject me. They will criticize me. They will eliminate me from the community, from my work environment, from my family, from my friends. Well, what will happen then? Well, then I'll suffer and I'll be alone. And um, I, 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 maybe the suffering will create such tension in me that I'll relapse and I'll drink again. And if I drink, I'll suffer some more and then I'll die. And he said, well, what's underneath that? Do you have a fear of death? And I realized I didn't have a fear of death, but I had a fear of the suffering that brings about death. I had no fear of dying. My sense at that time and still is, it's over. Whatever is, is. And we can speculate about what is, but nobody really knows. And so I'm not anxious to die, but I am prepared to go at any time. But I, I'm not, uh, I'm going to try to protect myself from the suffering that leads to it. Now, Bill very carefully here and very simply says, we have fear because of self-reliance. That's why I don't have a, a formal worksheet. I have a worksheet, but I'll talk about that in a minute. He says we have fear because we don't trust God. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. Well, when did that happen? Oh, third step. Made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. Not to God. That's not a subtle distinction. We are not turning our will and our life over to God. We are not surrendering to God, please. We are making a decision to be in alignment with our understanding of God's will for us today. In alignment. And so we need to listen to the Spirit. 
in order to be in alignment. Like the GPS, I know where I want to go. I have the address. I don't know how to get there. So I put the address into the GPS and then I listen to it and I follow direction. And if I follow direction, I will get to where I'm going to go. That's a fabulous metaphor for the power of step three as well as step 11, of course. But then he says, we are in the world to play the role God assigns. The man said to me, turn that question inside out and make, turn that statement inside out and make a question out of it. What is the role that God has assigned? He said the answer is so important because of the next line. Listen to it. Just to the extent that we do as we think God would have us and humbly rely on God, does God enable us to match calamity with serenity? Translate. That's a very dense sentence. Translate. If I want peace, I need to be in alignment with reality. Just to the extent that we do, that our behavior, as we think God would have us, alignment with, with God's will, and humbly rely on God. I'm powerless. I need to rely on power. Does God enable us to match calamity with serenity? And yet I have the responsibility of acting in accordance with my vision of reality. And in fact, if I'm having difficulty in my life, there's something wrong with me. That's what it says in the 12 and 12, doesn't it, in step 10? It's a spiritual axiom. Whenever I'm disturbed, great word, a total catch-all for every aspect of human suffering. When suffering, not pain. Whenever I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. And what is wrong is that I'm out of alignment with the flow. Discernment is a very fancy, sophisticated spiritual term. And all it means is that I think about things in the milieu of prayer. That's why I like the set-aside prayer. That's why I like the serenity prayer. That's why I like the third-step prayer. That's why I like the seven-step prayer. These are the prayers that signal to us the right, uh, the, the healthy. I won't use right. I don't like right and wrong the healthy, appropriate attitudes to take toward reality. I want to be in alignment with reality and in the seventh step. And I can't be because I'm powerless. So I ask my creator to recreate me on a daily basis, my creator. And the last line of the seven step prayer, so powerful that it is the prayer that I conclude my quiet time in the morning. It's a launching pad for the day as I go out from here to do your bidding. Bill says, faith means courage. All people of faith, meaning a decision that's empty about invisible and spiritual realities, and I'm going to behave as if it's true. The definition of faith is a decision. The definition of trust is the behavior that comes out of that decision. 
God will demonstrate through us what God can do. We ask God to remove our fear. So we can name it, we can list it, we can analyze it, we can talk about it. We just can't necessarily finally get rid of it. And so as in the resentment inventory, take a look at pages 66 and 67 and my comments about that, the prayer for the deep the, for the removal of deep resentment. He again here on page 68 says, you're as powerless over your fear, its removal as you are over your addiction. Powerless, no choice. You can name it, sure, because you have consciousness and a mind that thinks. And you can pray about it because you have a decision and a willpower. And you can make an effort. That's your responsibility. But you can't necessarily produce the results that you want on your own. If you're not able to remove the fear through your own process or maybe with the help of professionals, if it's a phobia and or trauma, which are human conditions that would require some professional intervention usually, then pray. I'm a big believer in prayer, not because it changes God, but because it changes us. Prayer doesn't change God. Whatever that reality is, God, it doesn't change. It doesn't come and go. It doesn't reward and punish. It's not present or absent. Whatever it is, it never changes. It's infinite by definition. Doesn't have any beginning. It doesn't have any end. Remember the phrase I mentioned from Thomas Merton. No, I do not understand that. I adopt it because it seems to make sense. And faith is a decision that it makes sense and that I'm going to base my life on it. No, I'm, I'm living my life as if it's true. You know what? I don't actually care if it's true or not, because when I look back over my shoulder, my life works. My life flourishes. So I'm not going to change anything. We let God demonstrate through us what God can do. We ask God to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. In the paragraph above, he talked about do and behavior. In this paragraph, he talks about be, our essence. Who are we? That once we commence to outgrow fear. Now I do have a matrix in the way of life document that comes out of my human development training in psychology. It's the same kind of matrix I used uh, in the step six inventory for the turnaround to try to create the turnaround that I experienced so effectively in step four, uh, resentment inventory. So column three, column four. Column three is my beliefs. Column four is about my motives. And column four, column three told me the lie my beliefs about who I am. And column four told me the truth about who I really am. And that was the turnaround where I accepted full 100% responsibility for who I am, how I think, how I feel, how I behave. I'm 100% responsible. I'm not 100% responsible for my history. Let's be really clear. I had an alcoholic father. 
he was verbally and emotionally abusive. I'm not responsible for his behavior, but I am responsible for my reaction to it, especially after I become 21. I'm fully responsible as an adult after age of maturity, whatever that is for you. 100%. My history is interesting and probably helpful to unravel, but it's irrelevant in terms of living my life right now. My history, my story is irrelevant. What is relevant today is my attitude, my perception, my feelings, my decisions, and my behavior, 100%. And so like in the resentment inventory, Bill suggests that we pray. In the effort at having that turnaround experience, so that we have a positive experience with going forward with our fears, that matrix asks us to take a look at certainly the fear and why we have it. But I ask this question, what are we defending? Because we have fear because we're defending something in ourselves. It's pretty predictable as human behavior, but it'll be unique based on our own perceptions and, and experience and personality. And then the fourth column would be, what's the virtue that would be present if in fact the fear was absent? So if the fear produces dishonesty, then the virtue would be honesty, transparency. And how, what would be the behavior? Well, it would be the transparency that I would tell the truth where it is appropriate to tell the truth. It's not about announcing everything to everybody in transparency. It's about common sense and balance. And that's where step guides and sponsors and therapists and friends come in. Do you trust God or don't you? That's really the key question. If you have fear, then you're lacking in trust. Notice I don't say you don't have trust. You're just lacking in trust. And it's like a teeter-totter. Look at my arms. The more fear you have, the less trust. The more trust you have, the less fear. People say if you have fear, you don't have trust. No, that's not true. I think they're just reciprocal relationships. The more trust I have, the less fear I have. The more fear I have, challenge yourself. The less trust I have in God, in the universe, in, in life itself, in reality, and uh, about myself. I don't trust myself. All right, that's a challenge. That's why those Russian dolls are so important as an image to say, I need to get down to the authentic self, the true self, the core, one of my teachers calls it the core of goodness in me, that is me, that's been covered up by all of the life circumstances that were represented by those Russian dolls. They're called matrushka in Russian, meaning mother. These are the things that develop the false self that I am today. And I need to take those masks off 
I need to have those masks removed. You hear the two differences. I have some responsibility, but I'm going to rely on the gift of grace and power other than me to, in my cooperation to pull the curtain back on the real self. People have found that matrix very helpful, but I really recommend that we follow the big book suggestion first in the unpacking. What fear comes up when I make that conclusion? What fear comes up when I make that conclusion? What then, what then, what then, what then? Until you hit a bottom where you see the truth or you can't go any further or you begin to go in circles. Then just go on to the next fear. Because once you do five, certainly a maximum of 10 unpackings like that, you will begin to see a pattern. The, Bill asks us in the preface to the step four inventory on page 64 to get to the exact nature, the truth and the facts. And by the time you do several of these analyses, you will begin to see a pattern emerge, I believe. And then once you see the pattern in your life, it'll be different than other people's. Then in fact, you can begin, if we don't know it, we can't deal with it. One of my friends is a psychologist, Father, uh, Dr. Alan Berger, and he says to name, to, to name it is to tame it. And then in a, Sharing the other day, somebody said to name it is to tame it, and then we claim it. See, there's the acknowledgement of the truth of reality. This is who I am right now. It's not who I want to be. So I'm making a commitment to change. Yes, I make a commitment to change. How do I do that? Step six and seven. We'll look at that next time. Five, six, and seven. The power of six and seven changed my life. I'm powerless over my character defects, but I'm fully responsible. I'm powerless, so I pray. I'm responsible, so I hold myself accountable. We'll talk more about that in depth uh, next month. We're going to take a break here for some Q&A. I just wanted to report to everybody. I'm, I'm working with a sponsor through with Herb's um, Way of Life. And... Um, I couldn't release that resentment for six months. It fell away. And Herb, I just wanted to say thank you. And the reason that it fell away was because there was something very slight and nuanced. Like when you're talking about the fear today, the what's underneath, what's underneath, what's underneath. And it was something around a former sponsor and it was hurtful. And while I was right, the reason I couldn't let, and you said that, the reason that I couldn't let go of the resentment was it wasn't enough for me as an alcoholic to be right. Um, just to, just to know my truth. Everyone else had to know I was right too, <laughs> including her. And, and it was so subtle. And, and yet when, when you said it, it like the truth just like ripped my heart open. And I prayed about another week and then that resentment fell away. And I'm about to start step nine in this process. And there are no accidents in God's universe. That former sponsor reached out to me over text just to see how I was. And I've been preparing 
to do an amends um, toward that person. But I just wanted to say like this, this resentment prayer that Herb has yeah. in his book. Yeah. Um, it's astonishing. And I had a lot of names on it, but if everyone can see like most of the names are crossed off. <laughs> so it does work, but you have to do it every day. I, and I do it every day. And I love what you said about doing it from your knees, not to get God's attention, but to get my attention. Um, so I just wanted to say, thank you. It, it's helped a lot. That was really weighing on me. And I'm in a lot of fear right now over a lot of things. So hearing everything today too, with what you talked about, about getting underneath again, um, I think will be really helpful as I move forward in that um, process with my my current sponsor. So I just wanted to say thank you. And I want to tell everybody it works. You just got to do it every day. <laughs> so thank you, Herb. Thank you very much. Oh, no, thank you so much. It's uh, it's such a, a basic truth. We miss it. We don't believe it even when we hear it. So we need to hear different people witness to the power of the effectiveness of this process because I can say it and people, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, Herb, oh, well, that was your experience, but you're, you're special or whatever people say. But when everybody, excuse me, when a lot of people like yourself come up and say, you know what, this stuff actually works. <laughs> I mean, it's very practical. Then people go, wow, okay, there's a witness to it. Like that third step prayer says. Yeah, thank you so much. Just going to share uh, what came up for me when I made the list of fears, and it was uh, I'm afraid of upsetting someone. And then I thought, looked deeper into that, and I was like, it's not because I'm worrying about hurting someone; it's because I'm worried. Um, I'm afraid of what will happen to me <laughs> if I upset them. <laughs> Maybe you know. Um, and telling, I'm afraid of telling my real feelings. It's just a go-to place for me. I hate that. I'm, I mean, you know, I I see the benefit so much of living in trust and being open and being on, you know, I've come a long way in the work in the steps, but that's still just my go-to place when I'm in a, a situation where I feel threatened, you know, for whatever reason. Um, fear of being hurt, fear of not look, looking good or being held in high esteem. And I, de I definitely uh, related to your, uh, you know, the fear of honesty is that I want to control your image of me. Yeah. That was really interesting. But then when the other part where we're talking about the fear and the trust, um, and you're saying, you know, what does it look like if you trust and you trust God and myself and life and the trust that I have a core of goodness? Um, I think that's more that I related more, actually. I'm sort of, you know, and I get into the details, but I've been in a situation I shared about last time with this person that brought out difficulties in me. I won't even say she was difficult. This brought up my stuff, you know. Um, and I think underlying the most, it wasn't so much. It's fear of trusting myself, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's sort of complicated, but I just have been praying on it, and I have been uh, came to a, a, a decision that's going to work better for the friendship and work better for uh, keeping the friendship, but working better for our you know interaction that's ongoing. And um, it's it, you know there's no silver bullet. It's like it's like the process of the of the program and the process of of meditating and praying every day. And growing and and growing my self love every day. I think that in my case, that's what is the cause of the fear. Um, and uh, the more I give myself permission to love myself and accept the love from a higher power, you know, you can do anything. <laughs> See, and, and what you are commenting on is, at first, you're conscious. We need to be conscious of 
who we think we are. We need to be conscious of what's going on. We need to be conscious of how we're feeling. We need to be conscious of what we're perceiving. We need to be conscious first. Then we can take some action. That's the whole point of this thing is to be conscious. And the word I use as my mm, sort of litmus test of my interaction with people primarily is I want to be undefended. Undefended. What am I defending? All I'm, what I'm defending is my insecurity, my lack of confidence, my own low self-esteem. What am I defending? I don't want to defend anything. Now, that's a, that's a, a, a vision, a goal. It's not, Cause, yeah. Because I don't have the power to defend anything. The higher power is the only power. <laughs> no, but you can be awkward in trying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. Well, um, I just have a quick question. Like your analogy of the dog, the big dog thing, like fit yeah. into all of the fears that I have so far. So like when I put like, name the fear that someone will hurt my grandkids. Why do I have it? I was kidnapped as a kid. Yeah. So can't, that is lack of trust in human beings. Everything, lack of trust, like falls into all of this. So can I just put lack of trust or do you suggest I still write everything out? Um, I really suggest that you write everything out. I see uh, Bill's conclusion is wonderful. It's wisdom, but it's a bit glib. It doesn't help me until I get some granular feel of what, what are the ingredients underneath. And immediately I would want to know a little bit more. About, I'm not asking right now, but I would want to know a little bit more about your experience because it sounds like you had trauma. And, and that would require, that might require professional help to resolve that. And what you're doing is reliving the trauma and projecting it onto your grandkids, which is normal, but unfair. Okay. Right? So do the writing, write it all out. I think so. Do the unpacking. That's why people want to rush and go to the matrix mm -hmm. and, and try to do the turnaround <laughs> too quick. Okay. I, I, I really, and I, I don't have any rules, but what I have found most productive for people is they do the unpacking and they do several of it to get an experience with it on different fears. Then they take whatever they see as a pattern and they go over to the, the structure, the matrix to see if in fact they can get some sense of the direction that they want to begin to develop in their lives through prayer and a behavior, and I always connect it to accountability. Whatever you decide that you want to do, tell somebody what you want to do and, and be specific, and then pre periodically check in with them, tell them how you're doing. Thank you. So we're, we're not isolated because we can rationalize our way back to our disease. I'm going to go back to looking at the... PowerPoints that we have. That's the worksheet that I referred to in the fear inventory that you will see in the way of life document. All of my resources are on my website and they're all downloadable for free. I do not have a business. I do not make money at any of this work. 
as Chuck C said, it's all for fun and for free. I just really want to help. And so that's my intention here. So what about the sex inventory? <clears throat> well, the first thing that will strike you <clears throat> in the sex inventory is that <clears throat> it's actually not about genital sex in the sense of the inventory. It's about genital sex in terms of the focus, but there's nothing about gender or frequency or position. There's nothing titillating about the sex inventory. And it's not about judgment and it's not about negativity and it's not about guilt and shame. It's about an objective review of our behavior to take a look at it and say, is that how I want to behave today? I look at my history just to, in, to try to connect to what the truth is in my current consciousness. When I was 15, when I was 25, when I was 35, I had different levels of consciousness that led to different behavior. Now that I'm whatever age I am, and I have a program, and I have a process, and I have an accountability, and I have a community that supports me, and I have prayer that opens up my heart to the truth. How do I want to behave today? Well, let's see what happened yesterday. Bill says on page 68, many of us needed an overhauling there. We tried to be sensible on this question. The sex inventory, two, two pages, 68 to 70, two pages changed my life. I was 48 years old, four years sober when I was going through this step process. And I was behaving poorly for those four years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Leave it at that. And I did this work and I got conscious that I was behaving in a way that wasn't in alignment with my own principles. First, I didn't know that I had principles. And two, in some cases, I didn't have principles that I actually became aware of that I wanted to have. And that was the benefit. We don't look at the particulars, the story, we look at the motives, the beliefs, the impact on others and the behavior. That's the whole point of the sex inventory. As Bill said, the facts. The truth will set you free. First, it will irritate you, maybe even embarrass you. But eventually the truth will set you free. He has two themes here in the sex inventory. One is common sense. He says, we tried to be sensible. I'm gonna explore that first as he does. And then he talks about our relationship with God as the only criteria. Bill is very clear. The world and the people in it are not the criteria of my sex behavior. In fact, I'm not 
the criteria of my sex behavior on my own. It's in relationship with a power other than ourself and an honest, open conversation with that power that we come to the truth about what we want in our sexual behavior. He said, we find human opinions running to extremes. One voice cries for sex as a lust of our lower nature. Bill was coming out of the Victorian age. Queen Victoria, a dress up to the ears and down to the shoes. We don't reveal anything. But he also had gone through the roaring 20s in which everything was revealed. Libertarian, libertine, excuse me, libertine, not libertarian, libertine is the contrast to the Victorian. A base necessity of procreation was the Victorian. Then we have voices, page 69, who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, the libertine, who think that most of the troubles are the race are traceable to sex causes, probably referring to the Freudian philosophy and experience that was being proclamated in those days, promulgated in those days. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. Clearly a reference to Freud. One school allow people no flavor for his fare, Victorian. The other would have us all on a straight pepper diet, Libertine. All right, here's Bill Wilson, the big book and the 12-step fellowship philosophy about sex. It's right here, page 69. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. Please hear that as sponsors. We have no opinion. We have no opinion for others. We do have an opinion for ourselves, of course. We all have sex problems that continues. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. Well, what can we do about them? You see, Bill gives us that question before he unpacks it into a wonderful answer based on experience. We reviewed our own conduct over the years past, similar to the resentment inventory, similar to the fear inventory, make a list. Make a list of the consciousness of your first sexual behavior if in fact you haven't done a sex inventory before. If you've done a sex inventory before, go back to when you concluded that prior sex inventory and look at the time frame from then till now. Because if in fact you followed these directions previously, there's no point in reviewing anything previous to the conclusion of your last inventory. If in fact your sex inventory in the past didn't reflect the instructions in the big book, you might wanna take a look at the highlights of your sex inventory prior to your, the conclusion of your last inventory. We reviewed our conduct over the years past. So you make a list of your thoughts and your feelings, especially your behavior from the very first consciousness, maybe five or six years old. 
and maybe playing house or playing doctor or whatever it was in terms of self-exploration and masturbation. And then we go to uh, relationships with other people, male and female. And then we go to any other variations on a theme of sexual behavior, pornography, for instance, read or watched. Not to judge it, but to evaluate it. Not to be negative, not to be dismissive, not to be puritanical, please. We're looking at the facts objectively. Bill has some questions, in fact, nine, as I've unpacked them. I make full questions out of words that he uses in these sentences. Where had we been selfish? That's a question. Where had we been dishonest? Although it's in that sentence, I make a separate question out of it. And you can see that worksheet in my way of life document. All it does is take these words and make separate sentence out of it. Inconsiderate, whom had I hurt? Did I unjustifiably arouse jealousy? That's a sentence. Suspicion, a different sentence. Bitterness, a different sentence. Where was I at fault? A different sentence. But quite frankly, the heart of the matter is question number nine, as I number them. Because it, it's the, for me, it's the relevant question, the bullseye question of the sex inventory. What should I have done instead? Now, please hear this. It's not going back to age 20 and judging it. This is what I should have done at age 20. No, you can't do that. You couldn't do any different than you did. Otherwise, you would have. Let's be really clear. And, and of course, there's a discussion there, but, but not, not today. Today, we look back at age 20 and say, if that situation were present to me today at age 40 or 50 or 60, what, how would I want to behave today? And I write out the answer to the question, what should I have done instead? Because now I'm digging down in me to determine the principles that are in me. Oh, I should have been faithful. Oh, I should have been honest. Oh, I should have been considerate. Oh, I should have been kind. Oh, I should have been aware of their needs and not just solely my needs. Oh, I should have been friends. I mean, so many things. Well, these are coming from me. Don't please adopt them because I say them as, as principles. No, no. That's my inventory, not yours. But perhaps you could identify with some of it because it's pretty universal. We got this all down on paper. Why? The whole point of the sex inventory is to develop a sex ideal. In this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. See, beginning today, beginning today, I mean today, literally today, what do you want to do and how do you want to behave going forward in your sex conduct. And I'm talking about genital sex. Now, I know that there are new developments. I'm not aware, of, excuse me, I am aware, I'm not experienced with these in the area of 
sex addiction, as well as relationship and love addiction. And at least here on the West Coast, we've got a, a, a variety of uh, programs dealing with different aspects of it. And they each have their own protocols and definitions of abstinence. And, and most of them talk about thoughts and fantasies. I'm not experienced, I'm acknowledging the words and the vocabulary. In contrast to genital sex, they're talking about thoughts, feelings, emotions, imagination, fantasies. All right, and if in fact you have issues in the area of sex addiction, you could explore that with people who have experience, not me. We try to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. Is it selfish or not? There's the ultimate question because that's the ultimate root of the problem. Page 62, selfishness, that's self-centeredness, exclamation point. That is the root of the trouble. I'm paraphrasing, but pretty much quoting. Selfishness and self-centeredness, not as a negative statement, not as a judgment evaluation. It's a, a statement of fact. We're coming from a survival mechanism. How can I get my needs met? It's primitive, it's biological, it's psychological, it's all about survival. Literally, hardwired into us, every human being. We ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. All right, so this is the second major theme about our relationship with power, the universe, with whatever it is that you made a decision about in steps two and three that is real, that you're relying on, that is real, step two, and that you're relying on in step three. Whatever that is, that entity, that reality, we have a synonym, G-O-D, just for the ease of conversation. The word G-O-D is not God. It's the symbol of that reality for which we can't name it, but we want to believe is available to us. We ask God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. Notice the pattern here. Mold our ideals to know better. Help us live up to them to do better. Because we all know the nature of unmanageability is a lot of times we know better and are not able to do better. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. That was the complaint of St. Paul in the Christian scripture. This is, this is pandemic in human nature. That word having special meaning today to us. This is human nature unmanageability, that what we call spiritual malady, that self-will run riot, and for addicts, extreme example of self-will run riot. We ask God to mold our ideals, that is to give us the truth, and then to help us live up to them, reflective of what, of how step 11 itself is crafted praying for the knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry it out. We need to know better. Most of us have a problem even knowing better, knowing what the truth is. But even when we discover the truth, or at least what we think is, we have trouble implementing it in our life on a consistent daily basis. 
So we need power. And this is how we're built. The things that make us specifically human are that we have an ability to know and ability to decide. We know with our mind and we decide with our will. Those are the two things that make us specifically human. It's interesting for me to do an analysis of the steps, which I have in the way of life document toward the end of it, in which I see that each of the steps comes from one of those, knowing or deciding. All of the even steps are knowing steps, and all of the odd steps are deciding and action steps. The steps are built specifically for human nature in order to create the change, spiritual awakening, that we want to have in order to have a smooth and serene and flourishing and happy and joy-filled life. That's the promise. Read pages 83 and 84 in terms of those promises. And on page 84, it says, they will always manifest if we work for them. Hello? They're not just going to be a present laid on our doorstep and that we can then enjoy for the rest of our life because we can unpack the basket. No. We have to engage in this way of living. We commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past, quoting from step 10. We commence this way of living, steps 10, 11, and 12, as I described earlier. We remembered always our sex powers were God-given and therefore good neither to be used lightly or selfishly nor to be despised and loathed. Please look at this. Whatever our ideal turns out to be, Bill is very clear. Connecting to the line above that I stressed on page 69, we do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We have no opinion. Whatever your ideal turns out to be, whatever it is, heterosexual, homosexual, celibate, no opinion. Polygamous, monogamous, we have no opinion. But you do. And you have to dig underneath and be honest with yourself. How do you want to behave? We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, again, referring to step eight, like he does in the resentment inventory, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing, reflective of step nine. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, up above, he talked about prayer for the right ideal. It's the sex ideal, not ideal sex. That's not subtle. The sex ideal is a vision statement. Ideal sex is a desire for what it is you want in your life. I think it's a very legitimate pursuit. Ideal sex, ideal relationship, ideal man, ideal woman. Those are wonderful psychological, human development, self-help kinds of pursuits for vision statements. So we get really clear. But that's not what this is about. This is about the sex ideal, meaning the vision of the principles that will guide me in my current and future behavior. We ask God what we should do in each specific matter. The right answer will come to us. He's going to hammer it home now. 
This is the second theme. The first theme was common sense, balance. The second theme here is your relationship with God personally and privately. God alone can judge our sex situation. Very clear. But then, of course, he's going to accommodate us as a human being with common sense. Persons we can seek out are often desirable. Perhaps a psychologist, a sex therapist, a counselor, perhaps a spiritual guide, perhaps a priest, a minister, a rabbi, uh, uh, some officially trained person in an organized religious tradition, perhaps a best friend, perhaps a, a mate a com in a committed relationship. You have these discussions to determine what it is you're both looking at, what you want, what are your standards, what are your principles. But he says here on page 70, we let God be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatic about sex as others are loose. That's those two Victorian and Libertine contrasts. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. So now he gives us a pretty decent warning because he knows this is a very difficult area. So we have this idea, suppose we relapse, suppose we, have, we fall off the, if our, if our, principle is fidelity, how about we relapse and we have uh, infidelity and experience? Are we going to get drunk? He said, well, maybe. It depends on our motives, page 70. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we're as powerless over our resolution about sex as we are over our resolution about our addiction powerful. Underneath resentment, the same counsel, pray. Underneath fear, the same counsel, pray. Here it is, underneath the sex inventory and behavior, powerless. So we pray to let God take us to better things. It says, we believe we will be forgiven and we'll have learned our lesson. But then he gives us the ultimate guillotine warning. He doesn't do this very often. He does it in the fifth step. He does it in some other steps, but very uh, consciously and thoughtfully. The warning that of relapse. And here it is. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. I was four years sober in 1988, and the man said, based on this and based on his awareness of my history and my inventory, Herb, you either need to get divorced or you need to stop this behavior. Otherwise, you will drink again. It was his experience. So he was not coming from opinion or any type of academic knowledge. He was coming from actual practical experience because he behaved that way and he drank again after 16 years. He was back eight years at that point after being out for five years. 
I knew it was true. I was not able to resolve it until I got to step six and seven, and that'll be a story for when we unpack it next, next month. To sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity. And what Bill means by sanity is not in contrast to insanity, as I've mentioned before, but you might have missed it. Comes from the Latin word sanus, which means health. That's all it means is health. And when you put an I-N in front of it, it means not healthy. Page 37, Bill gives us his own definition, a lack of proportion, a lack of healthy thinking. For, it, for sanity, we'll have returned, <clears throat> which is that we are protected from the obsession, that first half of the first step that undermines us. Once we stop, we cannot stay stopped unless, in fact, we're living behind a spiritual shield. That's what Bill says, not cured. We have a daily reprieve to maintain that spiritual shield, my words. And for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. The nature of our difficulties and resentment and fear in sex is self-centeredness. Well, it doesn't take much imagination to see that the opposite of self-centeredness is other-centeredness. Hello? That's as simple as it gets in terms of the solution that is offered in a 12-step methodology. That turning from self-centeredness to other-centeredness, self-centeredness 4 through 9, other-centeredness 10 through 12. That's the turning that we commit to in step 3 made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God, that GPS, that alignment with the flow of reality, removing the obstacles, the clouds, the darkness in us through steps four through nine so that we can live in the light, literally live in the light, in orbit around the light. The first nine steps is a three-stage rocket launch. Bill gives us that image in, on page 25, rocketed into the fourth dimension. Steps one, two, and three, that first stage of a connection to power out of desperation. Steps four through seven, the second stage, a connection to ourself, our true self. Steps eight and nine, a connection to other people an authentic relationship in partnership with the community of humanity, restoring justice through changing our behavior and lives and repairing the damage that we've done to others. But then we're in orbit after that three-stage rocket launch. We're in orbit around the line. The rocket's taking us where the rocket takes us. That's grace. But willingness is the key component. We are empowered to manage the rocket ship by daily adjustments in spot check inventory in step 10, by adjustments based on guidance in step 11 on a daily basis, by adjustments in 12 to the principle so that when we're out of alignment, we get into alignment and we know what that means, because that's the criteria of alignment is to be 
in harmony with principles, especially as we think about helping other people on a 24-7 basis. That's the lens through which we look at life. I mentioned on page 68, <clears throat> Bill's counsel to us. We are in the world to play the role God assigns. Well, what's that? What's that mean? Page 102, I believe, says our job now is to be wherever we can be of maximum service. Just suggestions from the big book. Bill was quite insightful as a psychologist, but totally prophetic as a theologian. And he was neither in a trained way, but he was every bit of that in an intuitive way from his own spiritual experience as well as the life that he attempted to live after that experience in trying to help us have a similar experience. So we make a list. We ask, what should I have done instead? And we create our sex ideal. That's the whole point of the sex inventory. Not to beat ourselves up, but to do an inventory. This is from the Way of Life document. It's set up as a worksheet, but you can see that it's all of the questions as I articulated them, unpacking the instructions on page 69, with that ninth question being the key. What should I have done instead? Not to judge our or criticize our prior behavior, but so that we can behave today based on our current level of consciousness. Well, I have also found that the big book is wonderful, but it's not complete. Bill says in some place in the book that we know only a little more will be revealed. And he says <clears throat> at the end of page uh, 70, at the end of his instructions on step four, if we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. Well, resentments column one, two, and three. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. Take a look at the suggestions in between column three and column four, page 66 and 67, a page and a half of helping us create an attitude and a prayer for the removal of deep resentments, which is powerful because it does what it, I'm saying it does what Bill is promising through the prayer, the removal of deep resentments. If you have a resentment and especially a deep resentment and you want it removed, we'll certainly do the work of column three and column four. Certainly do the work of column of uh, uh, steps uh, uh, five through nine. But he is imploring us to pray on a daily basis. That was my experience for the removal of that deep resentment. Now, it'll take time. The removal of a deep resentment took three months 
before one was removed. But once that was removed, and I knew it was removed because it wasn't there, there was no negative energy or valence. Then the balance of the list, there were seven additional, were removed over the next several weeks. And they've never come back. Freedom. Freedom. It's a gift. In this case, we have to work. There's some type of precondition. I can't explain willingness and grace and how it works together. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? But I know that they work together in collaboration. I was taken to a place of willingness. Hear the grace of that. I was taken to a place of willingness. Uh, but I was willing to be taken. Hear the willingness and the effort on my part. One of the texts I read in commentary on this talks about preconditions. It's not a formula in which we do one plus one equals two, because it's not arithmetic. It's actually geometric. It's not a stair-step linear. It's a stair-step staircase that's spiral. I don't know how it works. I do know that it works. One plus one equals five. That's the spiritual math. I can't get here from there, but here I am. I did a lot of work. Some of it I was given as a gift before I did any work. Most of it I received as a precondition after I finished some work. It doesn't matter whether you get it immediately or eventually. It doesn't matter what we think about it or how we explain it. The book and, quite frankly, most of the spiritual traditions and masters say it doesn't matter what you think and it doesn't matter how you feel. Oh, it does, of course, for a human condition. You need to know better and to do better. Knowing better doesn't mean you'll do better, but it's a nice combination. But there's a mystery here. I can't explain that vacant spot on the Michelangelo painting at the top of the Sistine Chapel where God is reaching down to creation and the human being is reaching up from the earth, from the mud, from the Adam, that's the Aramaic word for earth dirt. It's not the name of the person. But there's a space between the finger of God and the finger of the human being. And that space is where the magic happens. That space is where the mystical happens. That space is where the mystery happens. I can't explain it. I can observe it especially when I stop and pause and look over my shoulder. One and one make five. I can't get here from there, but here I am. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for, what, for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what I'm talking about. Faith, a belief in a power other than ourself for you to decide. 
we hope you are convinced that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked us. Step four, off from God. If you have already made a decision, Bill does the recap now. Step three, and an inventory of your grosser handicaps. I wish you'd given us that word up front, grosser, meaning the white shark, not the mosquitoes. For you perfectionists out there, deal with the white shark and the 100-pound tuna. Don't be worried about the 12-ounce trout, at least in the beginning. The net gets more qualitatively tighter as we get more conscious so that we do strain out the six ounce annoyances and the one ounce irritations. But don't be concerned about those at the beginning. Made a decision and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, you have made a good beginning. He talked about step three as a beginning. Now he talks about step four as a beginning. You see, more will be revealed. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. That's the whole point, that you name it and you accept it. But I also found after doing my step four inventories three different times that I needed to add some components to it that weren't in the big book as visible as I'm about to make it. If you notice the PowerPoint, it says dishonesty and secrets. I come from a model that Bill uses in the 12 and 12. He talks about instincts gone awry and from my biology and psychology exposure prior to 12 step, I know that at biology level, we have instincts of biology level for survival. We have instincts of fight, flight, and freeze. And at the psychology level, that translates into anger and fear and hiding, camouflage, dishonesty. And I see that as the step four inventory model in the big book in the sense that Bill talks about resentment, which is anger that's held to fear that interferes uh, with our getting what we want and keeping what we have. And our sex inventory. Underneath most of my sex inventory was dishonesty. I misrepresented myself and my motives in order to get what I wanted. But my dishonesty was much bigger than just that. And so I make it a category that connects to the freeze instinct, the camouflage instinct. When I hide my motives, I'm dishonest. When I hide my manipulation, I'm dishonest. I stole things. I had a history from early age all through till age 48, four years sober. At four years sober, I'm in a profession that has an expense account and I cheat on my expense account. That's the way I rationalized it, that I was taking money that they owed me anyway because they never paid me enough. Oh, four years sober, and I'm thinking like that. No, I'm a thief. And when I come to the eighth and ninth step, I'll talk about how I address that. We make a list. 
of our dishonesty and our secrets. The man who took me through the steps this time, this first time in 1988, said he kept a secret in his 17 years, 16 years of recovery. And he got drunk. He doesn't know whether there's a correlation. What he does know is he kept a secret and he got drunk. He made a huge stress on no secrets, transparency. No area of disturbance, no area of tension, no area of embarrassment that's kept under the cover of darkness. Hiding and discomfort, guilt and shame. Those are words that are not in the big book, guilt and shame. But in today's psychological sophistication, we would be remiss in not looking at our own guilt and shame. I'm talking about unhealthy guilt and shame. There's healthy guilt. There's healthy shame. If I'm robbing a bank, I'm guilty of being a bank robber. If I'm manipulating my position to harm, for instance, disadvantaged people, I should be ashamed of myself. It's appropriate. But what we're talking about here is unhealthy guilt, unhealthy shame, which again is pandemic in our society. Guilt is that negative feeling about my behavior. It's a delusion. It's not correct. It's misguided energy and shame. In contrast, is a negative feeling about who I am, that low self-esteem that is a, a lie that has been developed normally from our family of origin or from other, some type of other traumatic event. And it needs to be dealt with. A lot of it's dealt with in the first nine steps. Some of it needs professional intervention. If you have good sponsorship, meaning people with experience and knowledge and an open mind and heart, you'll find the right resource to deal with your issues. Secrets. The point of the fifth step is to reveal, to shine the light into the darkness. On page 75, Bill gives us the uh, recap and the promises. I'll just read the one that, for me, translates into the word secrets. We pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. I wonder what that means. Shining the light in the darkness are the terms that I use. So I have... Uh, an inventory that I've prepared, not officially, to have you take a look at these various areas and write a sentence or two, a paragraph or two, a page or two. It doesn't make any difference. In prayer and meditation, you ask about guilt as you do a radar sweep of your history, areas of embarrassment. Even though you've talked about secrets before, they're not a secret anymore if you've talked about them, but if you're still uncomfortable with it, it probably needs to be talked about again. I have a phrase, talk it to death. 
I mean, I don't mean with friends and socially and with family necessarily. I, I just mean with a person who is experienced and mature and can hear you at the deepest level talking about your discomfort with yourself. Areas of irresponsibility in the financial, in the relationship, in the behavior, in the family, in the work. Because Bill has four chapters at the end of the book, doesn't he? In which he talks about principles in all our affairs. He doesn't say it that clearly. Chapter eight, to the wives. That's about your principal relationship. What are the principles in that chapter that Bill is highlighting for us that are human, universal, spiritual principles? Chapter nine, the family afterwards. The principles in our family. Chapter 10, at work. What are the principles in our workplace? Chapter 11, it's got a very fancy poetic title, A Vision for You. It's a wonderful title. But when you read the chapter, it's very clear. It's talking about practicing principles in our fellowship and in our community. Responsible, capable of making a response. Irresponsible is that immaturity that says, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do by my own inclinations or by social and cultural expectations, which I've agreed to. Responsible and irresponsible. Living a life of principle or living a life of self-centered, non-principled behavior. Bill uses in step four, and I acknowledged it when we did originally the resentment inventory, in the 12 and 12, he uses the seven capital sins, which are listed here. I don't use them personally, <clears throat> but many people find it quite helpful. To assess and screen their history through the lens of those terms, as they might want to look them up in a dictionary or another place to understand what it actually means. It's not about judging ourselves. It's about attempting to find the facts. What are the, what's the evaluation of the things in us that create darkness in us? I suggest that you pray the set-aside prayer as you're approaching these items and write your thoughts and feelings and memories and be specific like you were with resentment and fear and sex. It's really, I say, it's really important to be specific about any area that you have any conscious intuitive awareness of discomfort, embarrassment, and or resistance to disclosure. There's the filter. Am I uncomfortable and resisting talking about this to my sponsor? Well, when we get to the fifth step, I'm going to make it very clear that you get to choose who you disclose what to. Bill says very clearly that we choose the person or persons with whom we're going to, and that we're not to bring something to somebody that will in fact hurt them. We'll talk much more about that when we get to step five next month. But I give this 
general principle at the end. Err on the side of maximizing rather than minimizing. This is about rigorous honesty, transparency, our insides and our outsides. This is the ideal. Our insides and our outsides. This is what I mean by rigorous honesty. Our insides and our outsides match. Undefended. Transparent. Because this is about removing the sludge in us that blocks us from God. See, step four is the roto-rooter. The spiritual and emotional roto-rooter. That removes in the channel. I use that word channel because of the prayer of St. Francis. We are a channel of grace. We are a channel of God. We are a channel of energy. We are a channel of light. Pick your metaphor. We're a channel. The sunlight of the spirit is deep down inside of us. The sunlight of the spirit is not me, but it is in me and it is available to me. Do I believe that? The sunlight of the spirit in me and available to me. All right, what blocks, keep in, keep, in, keep in your imagination, this metaphor. What blocks the sunlight from you then, if it's deep in you and available to you, what blocks it? All of the stuff that we've reviewed last month and this month in Step 4 Inventory, those are the clouds that block the sunlight. If you were to go out to get a tan, You would want to be in the clear sunlight without clouds uh, or fog. Use the metaphor in a gentle way and try not to think about all the negativity that is obviously involved with the actual physical reality of that. But if you want to be in the impact of receiving the sunlight, you need to not have any obstacles to that sunlight, removing the clouds by identifying them and analyzing them and then praying for their removal is the counsel of step four. And Bill, in step six, I'm giving you lots of hints and perhaps teasers about steps five, six, and seven, but it's such a powerful, powerful turnaround. It's hard not to. And six and seven in the 12 and 12, Bill talks about bringing the child to adulthood, bringing the young boy to manhood, bringing the immature person to a mature adult. This is the rite of passage that begins with the fourth step and ends with the seventh step. We admitted powerlessness in step one. We experienced technicolor powerlessness in step four. Step four is actually step one in writing. One of my good friends gave me that insight. It's powerful. Step four is actually step one experientially in technicolor, where we see the manifestations of powerlessness. And that's why I stress under resentment prayer, under fear prayer, under sex prayer, under dishonesty prayer, under secrets prayer. 
because it's all about powerlessness and we're taken into step five. Powerless to review transparently and yet we begin in prayer and do the best we can. Powerless in step six and seven, that's the heart of the matter. And that's why step seven is a prayer that begins with my creator. I hope it was intentional on Bill's part. My creator. I need to be recreated. I'm going back to the original builder and say, hey, hey, you know, I need to be repaired. I need to be reconstructed. I need to be recreated. And the prayer starts, my creator. Brilliant. We will be looking at steps five, six, and seven next month. A deep dive in the same way that we have for the prior steps. At this point, I'm going to stop the share, come back to you all and see if you have some questions and comments, experiences or resistances or disagreements that you would like to bring to my attention and um, or have a discussion about. I, I wanted to talk for a minute, if I could, about um, the fear. Um, the fear that I wrote down is just the fear that I'm not enough. Yeah. Um, and I could be more specific and say I'm not enough. I'm not a good enough mother, I wife. I think it's good at the general level for right now. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can give the specifics, but it's not necessary. Um and I, I really liked what you said about that there are only two natural fears and all the others are acquired and there, therefore can be overcome. And Bill says we have fear because of self-reliance. And I've really been working on developing my faith and trust in my higher power. Um, because I've, I would be so trying so hard to prove that I'm enough and there was no room for my higher power. So I, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I was so worried yeah. about my perceived inadequacies, you know, so aware of my fears, doubts, and insecurities, I was trying to fix everything myself. Yes, of course. That's, that, that is the job of the independent person by standards of our culture. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. And I do come from a psychological orientation. I have a, had a lot of therapy and there's a big emphasis on identifying my behavior, what I've done wrong, what I can do differently, you know, and that's the action steps that we talk about. And that's great. But I only knew about individual responsibility. I didn't know. I couldn't let go of anything. Right. Um, let, I couldn't let go of control. And obviously I've learned that I have to let go of control if I'm going to let my higher power help me. Well, only because there's no such thing as control. What do, what do you think you control? Well, what I know now is I can only control my ABCs, my attitude, my behavior, and my choices. Can you control it? Yeah, I don't think I can control my feelings, but I can control my attitude, my behavior, and my choices. Really, you can control your choices. Well, why are you in a 12-step program then? Okay, because 
If I make a, if I choose to take the first bite of oh, flour and, choose, and, and sugar. You, wait, wait, wait. And you choose to take the first bite? So you're not no. powerless. In my food addiction program, I choose to not touch flour and sugar because I, my choice is yes. only on whether or not I take the first bite. Really? Once I take really? the first bite, really? that's really? all she wrote. I'm well, going down that hill. I, I understand. So that you're, you have power over the first choice by your standards and by the book standards, you don't. Because obsession is the thought over which we have no power. The whole point of step one is that we don't have a choice and that's why we need power. Okay, I guess I was thinking about the definition of allergy and that I have an abnormal reaction to a substance. And for me, when I have flour or sugar, yeah. I have an abnormal reaction in that I want more, 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 more. Yeah. Yeah. But as long oh. as I don't have that first bite, right. oh, exactly. I'm not as preoccupied. <clears throat> well, no, as long as you don't have the first bite, you don't have the allergy. But your experience is that you do take the first bite. Well, not since being abstinent, thank God. Well, I understand, but is that because you made a decision to be abstinent? Or is that because you received the gift of grace, of freedom? Which answer do you want? I want to know what your experience is. Yeah, no, no, no. What, I'm, what I mean by that is intellectually, cognitively, I'm going to tell you, well, I chose, I choose to not take you, the first then bite. Then you don't need a 12-step program. Yeah, but I hear what you're saying that I, I couldn't, I couldn't do, I could only, yeah, I did low carb diets. I stayed away from sugar as best as I could before program. And it only got me so far because on my birthday, my kid's birthday, the high holiday, et cetera, I was not willing to stay away. And on those days I was a crazy person. So yeah, my doing it myself only got me so far. I need I needed this program. I needed this fellowship. I need, not needed. I needed, I need this program, this fellowship and my higher power to tell me, stop kidding yourself. It, if, if you let yourself have sugar one time, it doesn't matter that the other 30 days you didn't have sugar. It only takes one time. And that thought will not prevent you from taking the bite. Only God will. That's it. Yeah, so I guess I'm still working on letting go of control. You don't have any control. You're letting go of the delusion that you have control. That You know, intellectual pride is so hard to give up. I know in the 12 and 12, right, it you'll, says... You'll be, you'll be beat into submission. <laughs> I really like in the 12 and 12 how it says that... Um, intellectual pride or something like that intellectual is compatible with humility as long as humility comes first and listen i can be honest i knew nothing i knew jack about humility when i came to program i'm slowly learning about humility well thank you for going along with the conversation even though i hijacked you off of what you were, the direction you were going, but I think it was a moment for you, but it was a wonderful moment for everybody else, because if we have any power of choice, if we have any power of choice, we're not powerless. 
it's really hard to go of the intellectual pride it's horrible that I could do some of it myself. I was willing to let go of flour and sugar. The willingness is the key. The willingness was the key. I was willing to cooperate with the suggestions of the hospital and everything flowed from that. Not because I made a decision to do it, but because somehow that was the precondition for grace. My willingness comes from my higher power, you're saying. I, that's where I get the mystery that I, I can't explain it and I don't need to. I, uh, the answer would be yes, but. <laughs> and it's a conversation for another day. But you, yeah. and you were going down a track until I derailed you. And so why don't you continue with where you were going? Thank you. I wrote down on the worksheet you gave us about the fear worksheet, um, name my fear. So I'm afraid I'm not good enough. Uh, why do I have it? Because I learned in childhood that I'm not good enough. And I, again, I could give you specifics, but I won't bore you with that oh, right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know you don't need them. Um, and I've been comparing myself to others my entire life and coming up with the conclusion, therefore I can't possibly be good enough because I compare myself to everybody else who in my head is better than me. So what behavior is manifested, I'm sure this will come as no shock to you, but I try too hard and I push and I'm compulsive and I'm trying to always prove that I'm good enough and smart enough prior to program that I was thin enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I could also say, reacting, I tend to react fast instead of responding from a more centered, balanced, higher powers with me. I just re react to getting triggered. I get triggered all the time and I, you know, I react. Yeah. Um, so I guess the opposite of this fear of trying too hard, pushing, being compulsive, is to trust and let go of trying so hard. Well, that is that was, right? Is that right? Maybe, maybe. I think it maybe at a, at a different level, the opposite of not being enough is to be enough. So that then I would look at, so what behavior would come out of being enough? And what would it look like if I really believed that I was enough? And what behavior would come out of that? Somewhere in there, trust certainly has to come in, but it's a little bit more, um, it, it's not as tangible as the specifics. What would it, and this is perhaps rhetorical for you to be thinking about later on, but what would it look like? What would be the list of the virtues and the strengths and the... Mm, manifestations, the character, uh, uh, if in fact you were enough, not by comparison to other people, but by your own intuition as to the ideal, what does the ideal in your own mind, not your mother's mind, not your father's mind, where in fact you probably picked up this not enough business, you said childhood, but, um, but today based on whatever psychology you're aware of, whatever you're aware of from your uh, exposure to 12-step and sponsorship and, and any type of spiritual literature that you've done, what would be 
an, you, for you, given your personality and your inclinations, what would it look like to be enough? And then what behavior would that manifest? What comes to mind, Herb, is I would feel more relaxed. And, and what I would do is I would relax more and breathe more. If? If I actually believed that I were enough. Well, what would it look like, though? What would it look like? Yes, that would be the outcome. But what would it look like if you were enough? Uh, you know, I would be I would be a good enough mother who could handle my kid when he's being really oppositional without my taking it personally. Basically, I wouldn't take other people's behavior personally. I could be a good enough wife. And, you know, even if my. So I would be self-confident. I would trust myself. Um, that, that seems to be an outcome. The words that you're using a lot are the outcome of the strength. Virtue means strength. What would be the strength in me? I would have a sense of self-esteem. Well, what would that look like? A sense of confidence, a sense that I, I know some things. At the same time, I know that I don't know some things. I am really confident, but I'm not perfect. And so I'm not going to be defended, but I'm going to be open-hearted, but I'm not going to be a doormat. I'm going to have some sense of parameters and boundaries, that kind of thing. Right. Being in the middle, like not blaming myself for everything and not blaming somebody else for everything. The blame, um, excuse me, the middle road is the, for me, the balance road. That's right. Balance is, it's elusive. (laughs) <laughs> it's very hard to define, but it's living in the middle. You don't have to define it. You have to live it. And you know when you're not living it because you're on one side of the teeter-totter or you're on the other side and you're suffering. When you're in balance, you're not suffering. That's the whole point of alignment and flow. So the, so the answer is it's living in the middle. I do believe the middle path is the healthy path. Yes. And, and of course, that's uh, subject to lots of interpretations. And that's why we say it in such general ways, because it's up to you now to figure out. So what does that mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm constantly out of balance. I mean, that's, that's my Achilles heel. But I'm conscious in the morning of what balance looks like, and I can rebalance. Or as you said, um, I, I, I can attempt to do a 10-step during the day. I, you didn't say it exactly this way, but you said, um, I, when I'm more conscious, I'm not reacting, I'm responding. That's, that's huge. That's a spiritual awakening. How many people live that way? Most people are stimulus, bam, reaction. Right. <laughs> not I get triggered, I react. Yeah, not stimulus, pause, response. Right, and right. reaction is hardly ever productive. And the longer the pause, the more awesome and healthy the, re- the response. Yeah. So more responding, less reacting, making sure oh, to oh, have no, the pause. I'm going to say it differently. More pausing. <laughs> more pausing. More pausing. Yeah. And, and, and I'm saying to be conscious, to be aware. So that I'm literally making conscious decisions for action. More pausing. Yeah. That's, 
Yeah. And of course, I, I like Viktor Frankl's phrase. I know you know it. Yeah. Between between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space is our power and our freedom. Yeah. And yeah. it's finding the space, leaving the space, letting. And it's hard for somebody who tends to be anxious to to pause, well, to breathe, to anxious, leave space. Anxious is fear based. And that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? I thought that's what we were talking about. <laughs> oh, but that's well, in a way, but we're actually, I think we were talking a little bit about character defects, but be that as it may, um, the fear and the book says is about lacking trust, self-reliance versus God reliance. And that's where that conversation comes into play. Okay. And that's where prayer Prayer is so important, but accountability is the other half of the story. Prayer and accountability keep me balanced. Have you seen the quote, practice the pause? Uh, when, when in doubt, pause. When angry, pause. When tired, pause. When stressed, pause. And when you pause, pray. Yeah, no, I haven't seen that, but of course that's, the whole spirit of step 10. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do like that. Pause and pray more. So that's so that's what I'm getting from you. Pause and pray more. So thank you very much. Well, you're you're uh, definitely in hot pursuit. <laughs> thank you, Herb. I have a, a situation where I have I had discovered a, a resentment that that really has has uh, thrown me off course. And this was this occurred in the context of a uh, of an AA meeting, in which um, in which another member of the meeting um, said things uh, about me that I that uh, that I felt uh, violated my my anonymity and uh, and and uh, exposed uh, 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 personal. Uh, uh, bits of biography, and I, and I, I just, uh, I was so taken aback sure. that I, uh, and I, and and the level of my anger almost took my breath away. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I've, you know, I've been, uh, I've been in uh, AA for a long time, and I've dealt with issues of anger, and I just don't, I don't have this kind of anger as a uh, as a rule, but this this really uh, bothered me, and I I suspect it it oh, the things that he said uh, characterized me as as someone who's a know it all, and that's not an image that I that I want to project in the world, and I don't and I don't think I do, um, but I uh, and I just, I, I was, in, my immediate reaction was, I'm going to talk to him about this and let him know how offended I am. And I, I, I decided, no, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And I, and I, and I realized that this is all about me, but I'm having a really difficult time getting underneath this to, to see what that's all about. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> Well, first of all, you're having a very healthy uh, approach to it, examining 
your reaction, examining your motives, examining and uh, managing your behavior so that you're not doing something that um, you would regret potentially later. Yeah, creating more damage. Yeah. Well, it, wonderful, wonderful, yeah. And so I guess it would be important for you to get underneath, uh, number one, why is what he said, are you taking it so personally? Because, well, well, no, these are questions that oh, you need okay. to ask. Yeah. you're welcome to talk about it, but you need to, I believe, write these down and, and or think about them uh, uh, going forward is why do, why do you, what's your reaction to what he said is so powerful? And what is it that you're doing that gives him so much power that you're not saying, well, wow, that's really an interesting take on his opinion. It says an awful lot about him. It says nothing about me, would be the healthy response. See, what he said said a lot about his perception. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not as much about you, but somehow you're defended in, in yourself, in your reaction, because of the potential perception of other people based on what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so as you already know and pointed out, your reaction is in fact the problem here, not what he said. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it might be that you could do, I mean, if you're familiar with my work in the a step four resentment inventory that column three and column four might be a real advantage to just do a laser focused uh, mm -hmm. analysis as to what your beliefs are about yourself and or other people. And then what uh, is underneath uh, your motives in terms of your self-centeredness uh, where you're taking this so personally. Yeah. 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 And then, of course, if, in fact, you're harboring any resentment toward the person, then, in fact, use that prayer for the removal of this resentment. Being aware of the dynamics of column three and column four in terms of your beliefs and, yeah. and, and your yeah. motives. But, but knowing that it might not diminish or take away the negative energy that you have and that you need help with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's very real. I'm so glad that you mm -hmm. mentioned it because it's a bit, here you are with long-term and probably very uh, substantial and successful recovery by yours and other people's standards. And you're having this reaction, which number one shows that you're still alive in your consciousness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really. And, right. and you know, you know the, the principle from the 12 and 12 in step 10. Mm -hmm. It's a spiritual axiom. Yeah. And every word disturbed, and that's the word, you're disturbed. There's yeah. something wrong with me. Yeah. 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 Okay. But I don't know what that is. And at this point, you might not know what it is other yeah. than you took it personally and you empowered him to name you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have I have some work to do. Well, you do. And, you know, if in fact you cycle back with us, you could fill us in on the balance of the story so that we kind of keep okay. 
connected to how the process works for you and yeah. as an example, all right? Yeah, okay, thank you. But No, that's a very clear and sincere invitation to anybody that brings up an issue here and we talk about a possible solution. If in the in subsequent times that we're together, you could bring, like somebody did today, you could bring it up and give us some continuity. That'd be great. Thanks. Thanks very much. I'm an alcoholic and I was married for almost uh, 27 years and I um, got sober um, about three and a half years ago and my marriage was already in trouble before that, but it um, has since dissolved since that time. And um, I think there's a part of me also that still wants to be right, like make him see the light or something like that. You know, like I'm searching for these videos and things about uh, addiction to so I can point a finger, even though in reality, I'm not doing those things. I'm not communicating with him or pointing anything out i know better logically but in my emotional yeah. part of me i'm doing that yeah i understand yeah and i also related to um what you were sharing with another woman about um you know just being able to be there and be and not have any not needing to get anything out of the situation um and just to be of service or to be helpful. And I was not like that in my marriage. I was always wanting a tit for tat kind of relationship with my husband. Sure. <sighs> so you're in uh, recovery for three or four years? Yes. Have you done the steps? Yes. You've done a thorough fourth step as I've uh, outlined it, resentment, fear, and sex inventory? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you did a fifth step? Yes, mm -hmm. I've made amends. I've done a lot of those things. I'm sure, I think there's a process, though, of doing it more than once, obviously. Well, um, it, it depends. And um, it, quite frankly, is not obvious to many people. And it's not an instruction in the big book. But I, I hear your openness to it. It's certainly my experience. Some people do it once, and they're very rigorous about 10, 11, and 12. Um, I'm not that rigorous, apparently, because I had to do it four different times over four, 20 years. So there you mm -hmm. go. But, mm -hmm. um, but my experience is each time I did it, I got deeper because I was more conscious. So mm -hmm. yeah, you're, you're in process. Um, it sounds like it might be a benefit for you to become acquainted with Al-Anon. Oh, I have been <laughs> five <laughs> years. <laughs> right. I'm in all of it. All right. And you have an Al-Anon sponsor? Yes. And yes. so have you discussed with your Al-Anon sponsor this inclination to teach him a lesson? No, but I think I will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Make it public to her anyway. Yeah. Okay. Bring it to the surface because it's clearly an Al-Anon issue, isn't it? Mm. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, it could be an <laughs> alcoholic who just wants justice too. Oh, <laughs> probably. Bring your hammer because he's a nail. <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh, thank you. Well, you have a sense of humor about yourself. And I think that's going to be the saving grace. Yeah. Thank you. You're best. For me, this is, I think, the biggest struggle. Step four and reading through this today. So, um, you know, try, trying to maximize 
the honesty rather than minimize it with being right that uh, it was the other side who harmed me and therefore you know and that has been well, the, it uh, be true it may be true they did harm you all right. right absolutely there's harm done there's there's mentally ill people there's people with um uh, nasty willfulness and uh, demented motives, and absolutely, yes, yes, that's what they did. Well, Whose anger is it? Mine. Yeah. Well, what percentage of your anger is yours? Well, I, I've. I've oh, it's a simple answer. It's I'm not, not that angry. I'm not that angry anymore. Oh, okay. But you're talking about other people harming you. Yes. Well, I'm working towards an amends letter. Oh. Mm -hmm. So, you know. So how did you harm them? Oh, from A to Z, you know. Okay. Uh, so that's what you focus on, right? And, and their, their contribution to your misery is none of your business. Right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you it, do know that. It, indeed. Indeed. So, and, and, let me, let me, I'm going to back off just a little bit because you have not yet been able to fully express yourself. So please do. Well, indeed. And you've, and you're, you know, this is making that clear because, you know, each morning I, and I'm a big believer in God, believe me, when I had came back to God four years ago and said, I need, you need to recreate me. That's when the process started with AA, et cetera. And so the, the spiritual malady in dealing with that um, and getting to that maturity through your, through, through your, 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 your stuff here is, is, um, is phenomenal. It's eye-opening because if, if I'm going to be rigorously honest with myself, I really have to break down every single brick of the wall and, and do that. So and that's um, a wonderful image. That's a wonderful image because the wall is what we construct from childhood to adulthood as a mechanism, this wall that we construct to protect us. And then we indeed. wake up and then we wake up and it's a goddamn prison. Yeah. And so we have to deconstruct that wall. That's a perfect metaphor, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I, I'm in a small part of that prison still every day. Yeah. So um, I, I'm 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 working towards the amends letter, and you were right. A month ago, I wasn't ready. I thought it was, but I wasn't. Yeah. So. You so, know, it, what did you want to explore that, with me in that area? What's that? What did you want to explore in the preparation of that uh, letter? Because I, I know you started saying that they had some. You could see it that they were really responsible for some harm they did to you. Yes, that is correct. And I kind of stopped you there, but go ahead with your comments. Well, uh, it's almost like, you know, a, a pastor of mine told me about two years ago, just out of the blue, he goes, quit trying to be right. <laughs> well, here's a, a phrase I heard. Do you want to be right or do you want to be healthy? I, I phrase it this way. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Do you want to be right or do you want to be helpful? Because sometimes they're in opposite. 
Well, indeed. And so I've had to give up a lot about being right. And, and, and by doing that, it really brought me to a place of better serenity. Oh, my God. Wonderful. Because trying to be right is a lot of work and a lot of unserenity, believe me. For me, it is. A lot of, it's a lot of delusion, too. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I mentioned last week was the, you know, discernment. And you said, well, it's, it, that's more of a biblical definition. And, and I get that is it's almost like for a while lately, I'm using my discernment to be right about wanting to say I'm not right. <laughs> you know, I, I'm inverting it. And that even is a little delusional, if I may say so myself. Well, you know what? I think it's a, a, a thought, an attitude, and a prayer in, in, a, in a healthy direction. My, when I looked up forgiveness in a dictionary, look at my hand, everybody, look at my hand. Forgiveness in the dictionary says a decision to release them. Wow. And the paradox that we know is when we release them, we are released. That's what the Lord's Prayer says. That's what the Prayer of St. Francis says. It's paradoxical. I don't understand how it works. But when I make a decision to release them in step nine, this is where the rubber meets the road, step nine, I am healed. I bring healing to them. That's my intent. And goodness, look at that. I am healed. Yeah, yeah. And because some of the behaviors are sick, and I just have to release them and pray for them. Well, yes, and pray for yourself. That's the yeah, point indeed. of deep resentment prayer, is that we're praying for our own healing. We're, yeah. we're inviting the divine surgeon to come in and cut out the cancer in ourselves that is this poison of this being right. Well, and it's bondage. You know, it, it keeps me in mental bondage, and I, I don't want to I don't want to be there. You don't. I don't. Yeah. So... You mentioned the word struggle. I wrote it down when you first started. What's the struggle? Well, the struggle is the, the suffering. Yes. Well, and where does the suffering come from? Well, it comes from what goes on in my mind, but you mean like a specific yeah. example? No, no, no. What's the source? No, no, I don't I don't mean the symptoms of it. I mean the, uh, the well, there's 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 some resentments of what's happening and what's gone on the last 10 years um with certain individuals. Resistance. And, huh? Resistance is the source. My resistance to letting go of being right. That's the source of your suffering, is the resistance. Yeah. And I well, guess I, it would be very healthy for you to take a look at what's the benefit to you? What's the value to you of being right? That's a rhetorical question. You know, personally, I don't think there's any value at all. Well, then as why? Much as I, no, as no, much no, as no, no. Wrong. Because you're so invested in being right that we're talking about it. So obviously there's a benefit to you that you're not even conscious of. Well, I think it would make me feel better and look better, but. Um... Well, what's underneath that then of looking better. And so this is a, 
in, I'm suggesting to you that you take that question into prayer and allow yourself to write about it after meditating about well, what's the benefit or the value underneath the underneath the underneath of my being right. I think it's a fear of being so humble that I'm going to be taken advantage of again. I, I believe that 100%. Yes. Yes. But in the That's eyes of God, wall. That's why we have the wall. Go ahead. But in the eyes of God, that's the place I have to be. I have to be in that humble, humility place because there and only there can God really use me and start the reconstruction process from the ground up. And and one of the better definitions I've heard of humility is humility is truth. Indeed. Looking at reality as it is. What is the benefit? What is the disadvantage? What is the purpose of my being right? What's the truth of that? The underneath, the underneath, the underneath. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Keep us, keep us in the loop as to your discernment. Um, I feel like I just need a little more help on the fear inventory. I'm not exactly sure, sure. where to go. Yeah. Like I have, this is one of the fears I wrote down that I will alienate my friends, that they will reject me and I'll end up being alone. Yeah. Right. Then I'm not sure where to go from there. Well, um, in the unpacking of it, I would be suggesting that you came to, I will be alone. And what fear does that produce in you? Don't be thinking here, and I'm so glad you're raising the issue. Don't be thinking here of the logical implications. That's not about fear. That's about thought. Fear comes from a feeling in the heart or a feeling in the gut. Feeling, not thought. So what feeling comes up when you, and this could be rhetorical, I'm not asking you to answer, but you're welcome to. What feeling comes up when you say, I'm going to be alone and it's going to be forever. I'm going to be alone and forever. What fear comes up? Then when you put down something as a response to that, because you probably are, actually have an intuition right there. You had something come up as I even said it. Then you put that down and you say, and what fear comes up when, when and if that would happen until such time as you cannot seem to go any further in the exploration. But then what do you do once you get to that point? Well, it hopefully has revealed something about the underlying nature of your fear, or you've hit a wall where you can't go any further, or it's begun to go circular, so it's not producing anything, and you stop. You go on to the next fear. But eventually, but eventually, you take some pattern that you see in the fear inventory and you bring it over. This is my additional suggestion. It's not in the book, but it's helpful for the turnaround is to the, the, mm, the worksheet that I have, the matrix, and you see what would be the opposite of that fear? If I didn't have the fear, what would be the virtue? What am I defending? And what behavior would go with that? So that you can begin to pray for and experience and practice 
the behavior that would exemplify the virtue so that you're acting different than you feel. There's a classic statement. You've probably heard it from a sponsor and or in a meeting. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you feel. It does matter what you do. And when you do differently, when you do differently, despite your feelings and despite your knowledge, when you do differently, your knowledge will change. Your feelings will change. And that now we know that scientific because we're actually changing our brain. When we behave differently, we change our brain. We rewire our brain. We can rewire our brain. We didn't know it 15 years ago. Now we do. It's been confirmed. We rewire biologically, physiologically, we rewire our brain when we behave differently. Does that all make sense? I'm sure it will. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a, well, first of all, it's a lot of work. Yeah. But how free do you want to be? Yeah. No, that's the ultimate thing. I mean, that's the ultimate challenge for us and confrontation. Uh, oh, my God, Herb, that, that's going to take weeks. No, that's going to take months. No, that's going to take years. What's the alternative? Well, in five years, I'll be 50. Oh, my God. Well, how old will you be in five years if you don't do it? Oh, 50. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Embracing the present moment is the key to human living, to optimal living. Embracing the present moment as consciously as we can. The more conscious we are, the more empowered we are. That's why the step 11 says, praying for the knowledge of God's will and the power to do it. We need that knowledge first. But we can't get it on our own. We need the power. And that's the whole purpose of step 11, to improve our consciousness. Oh, it says to improve our conscious contact. But really underneath the underneath the underneath, it's to improve our consciousness. I, I have a paper that will be coming out on a whole series of step two and step three reflections about God. One of them is, God is consciousness. I'm not sure that fit in in a way that is helpful, but stay tuned. More will be revealed. My fears include this one of ending up alone. And, and yet that sort of ties into the resentments. So when I look at the resentments and I recognize that behaviors they have done to me are a result of their being sick and that I shouldn't expect things from them that they can't do, then I end up feeling good about that, but I also feel more alone. You know, it's like, okay, I can't expect them to love me in the way that I want. I can't expect them to, you know, be there for me or whatever. So I, I'm sort of stuck there. Well, I feel like it's not are positive. Stuck? Are you stuck? Let's take a look at it then. So what is it that you're really saying here? Did, did you hear as you were unpacking this yourself as to, so what's underneath everything that you just said? The, the fear of being alone? 
or, or, and yes, that's really where you started and probably where you ended in terms of the description of it. So what's going to happen if, in fact, you are alone? What's your fear? That, uh, that it's miserable and I might as well just give up. All right. What if, in fact, your life and you can see the future? And you're going to be miserable for the balance of your life. And the alternative is to give up. What fear comes up when you hear that? Hmm. Nothing really. Nothing okay. further. All right. All right. So you came to a wall. There's no right or wrong. You just came to a wall. And so we can go over now to the worksheet and say, okay. With this fear of being alone, I'm going to be miserable. And um, how do you behave when you're miserable? I, I go into my addiction, which is food. <laughs> All, right. All right. I overeat and I become disgusted with myself. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Beat myself up, etc. All right. What is it that you're defending? Well, I guess we already know that, don't we? What? Well, let me, let's try it. What are you defending with this fear and this behavior? Fear of being alone and fear of being miserable. The behavior of overeating. What is it? All what's what's that's kind of the symptoms of underneath that. What's what are you defending? Is it something like, like, you know, that I'm powerless to change anything? Maybe. I mean, that's not really defending it. So. Well, no, it might be. It might be. I don't know. I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. So don't dismiss anything. But um, so. Or maybe that I get to be right. Because see, I am alone. Ha, huh? I knew it. <laughs> all right. All right. But, but um, <clears throat> underneath the fear of being alone. What's driving that? What is what is your what is your perception about yourself that doesn't allow you to connect to people? Uh, I think it's low self-esteem that they wouldn't want to connect to me. You know, right. that, that I'm not worth it. Or I'm not worth connecting to. Can you put a little more color into that? Why are uh, what's your low self-esteem about? Well, that I'm not loving enough that they're not feeling any love for me. So they're not getting anything like that out of me that I'm not entertaining enough that they're not getting that, you know, that people aren't getting something positive, or, but mutually like, like my, no, my no, vision no, no, is no, this is good. You're exploring it. People are not getting anything positive from me. I love that as an answer, right? They're not getting positive, whether you're, I don't believe that our job is to entertain, but the way you phrased it, they're not getting any positive from me. They're getting only negative from me. Well, who would want to be around that? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a parasite. I don't want to be around a parasite. I don't mind needy people as long as it's in balance with my needs. <laughs> yeah. <Right? laughs> uh, well, whatever. But, um, <clears throat> and so, Let's just assume that that's what am I defending is um, that uh, I'm a I'm a negative person, that uh, I'm not a positive person. 
All right. And and I, I, I want I wanted to not make a difference with people. I want them to overlook that. All right. And so then in the next, oh yeah, I mean I, I don't know where this is going, but we're doing it spontaneously. Yeah. <laughs> but in the in the next column, in the fifth, in the fourth column, it would be so what would be the virtue that would be opposite of all of that? Well, that would be a positive attitude. And if I had a positive attitude, how would I behave? What would be your answer to that? If I had a positive attitude, I was there to make a contribution to my environment. What would that look like behaviorally? I think it would be, you know, like I've seen people who are openly charismatic, making it seem like they really are glad to be with you. So I would want to to create that feeling for other people that I am really but but, but are you glad. but are you a charismatic person? No. And I'm not always glad to be with them either and I can't so, take but, it. But yeah, so, so you're holding a standard that's not real. You have an ideal that's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. I I would need to be a charismatic personality. Mm -hmm. Well, the truth is I'm not. So what's the truth? Can I be a positive person instead of a negative person and have that not include this fancy charis charismatic attitude personality? Can I just be a positive person? What would that look like in behavior? If I were just a normal, balanced, positive person in a group, what would that look like for me? Uh, and that's a real question, not rhetorical oh, yeah. for later. Um, oh, no, that was a real question. <laughs> so I think it would be, you know, uh, openly listening, um, open hearted, um, warm, whatever that means, because that's sort of how it comes across. But I don't know what the behavior is that would go with that. Um, but like, you know, open, not no arm crossed. Kind you, of know, stuff. you know, you know, come on, this, don't don't judge it now. Don't filter it because you're on you're on a roll here. Mm. Go with that. Warm. Go ahead. More. Uh, yeah, more. <laughs> um, I guess I would I would call them, not wait for them to call me. Um, uh, All right. I would attempt to be genuinely interested in them. And I might want to have an attitude, an open heart, an open mind of contributing and helping to have more joy in this particular event. I'm not, it's not my job to make them happy, but I want to bring some sense of happiness and joy, goodness, contribution to this particular event. Not in the sense of charismatic, not in the sense of visible that I'm going to get applause. That's, that's manipulative. That's manipulative. But just in the sense that I don't feel it. I don't think it. But it's really what I would like to be able to, if I could, to contribute just a little bit to making this a better experience for everybody. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds doable, doesn't it? It does. The, the only problem that I have run into is that I listen to people 
and listen and listen and listen and listen and listen. And, you know, it's like people just sort of vomit all over yeah. me. Well, and so hmm. that hasn't worked for me. So yeah. I have you, do you know much about codependency? Well, I got the book you recommended last time, but that didn't really, it didn't really seem to hit it exactly. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. But, but you see, then you're around, you, perhaps you're around parasites. Yeah. Because, I, it, I, I mean, they, if it's a one-way street and you do all the listening and they do all the talking, that's not healthy either. But that's your problem, not their problem. Your problem is to say, after five minutes or 10 minutes or 15, you determine the time. He says, wow, that's really interesting. Here's my experience. Here's my reaction to that. Let me have some space. <laughs> Whether you say that or just act like it is, you know, that that's a practice that you will get better at over time. And maybe that's what I think that I'm giving to them and they perceive it as a vacuum, you know, that it's, it's a misconception of my behavior is not relaying to them what I think it is. Hmm. Do you have a sponsor in your fellowship? I do. And we're going to go over my step four. I'm doing step four now, but I said, I wanted to come here first and see what you had to say. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Good. Yeah. And Thank then and talk to the person or, or other wisdom people who have something that you like to see in a, in a group setting, talk to them about what their attitudes are, what their thoughts are and describe yours and, and see if there's something that you can adopt as, because I had to, when I came out of the seminary, I had, I had no social skills. When I came out of the monastery, I had no social skills. Age 24, I didn't know how to even act at all in a, in a normal behavior, in a normal society. I had to learn, and it was really awkward. So I had to watch and listen to people who were comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, okay, great, thank you. Thanks very much, wonderful conversation, thank you. I had an experience with step one and it, I got abstinent. I, I shared with you, I don't know, a month or six weeks ago that I was in, I'm in my addiction, I'm struggling. You told me to trust the process and to keep going. I have. And this very quiet sense of surrender happened last Thursday night. And the mental obsession has not been removed, but the drive to keep creating it has calmed down. And so I've been able to, you know, get back on track. So you mentioned it again today and the willingness and grace. Um, I have always felt that as an addict, I'm not very damn willing, <laughs> but, but something happened. I can't describe it, but I, it's just incredible. Well, try to describe, um, try to describe it, please. It, it's. I feel this peace around. The reality is, I have an allergy to sugar. My body reacts differently. My mind goes crazy. I know my willpower is all over the place, and I'm trying to control everything around me. So. I felt like 
I had been zapped with a cattle prod over and over and over. And I finally just went, I give up. <laughs> yeah. I give up. Yeah. I am miserable in my addiction. Yeah. Um, the feelings that come up without my numbing substance are frankly kind of frightening. Yeah. Um, I'm really praying hard and meditating on being able to face that again because I know yes. that they're there. Yes, yes. But it's a quiet spirit and that's not normal for me. I'm, I'm very introverted, but I'm very extroverted when I need to be. And so I'm a big personality and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And so for me to have this quietness I actually spent that first weekend kind of in retreat. Yeah. And I just did it naturally. I didn't plan it, didn't try to control it. And that's all unusual for me to let go of that. Yep. But the experience was really profound. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. Um, I, I encountered a young man. <clears throat> that's a longer story than I want to tell right now. But he finally got some traction with regard to his own program. He was 24 years old. <clears throat> and I said, so what, what happened? He said, I gave up, just like you talked about. I gave up. And then I said, so what, so what happened then when you gave up? He said, I quit resisting. I said, yeah. then, then what happened? He says, I was willing to take direction. The man who took me through the steps in 1988, I was four years sober, as I've mentioned, first time going through the work. And I came to him during the eight and nine step process. And he asked me how I was doing. And <clears throat> I told him that I wasn't doing much in the ninth step because my life was getting so full. And I, but I was willing to, and I was going to get to it when I got time. I was willing to do the ninth step but I didn't have time. He said, willingness without action is fantasy. Mm. So your great. willingness is great, but then it takes action. I love the fact that you are aware that you got quiet, which was in fact a gift and a completely new experience. And just, you, you don't have to do anything with it except lean into it. Just lean, don't chase it, don't grab it, don't, don't try to control it. Don't uh, just embrace it and lean into it and see where it takes you. I experienced resentments from others. Their, their actions toward me, it's like they resented me or resented something. So it was like for a minute there, I had, to, I had a resentment towards their resentments toward me and I had to teach myself not to take it personal. <laughs> That's because human. believe me I, I, yeah. I can and you know one of my struggles and suffering was not to take things so personal now yeah. there's other people that are closer to me wife family kids etc where I take you know their kids I take things a lot more personal and that's probably the biggest suffering issue I have today is working through that uh, to to not be resentful to be more loving uh, some of the things that Alan on taught me on, you know, accepting them, praying for them, meeting them where they're at. 
I've also had to remove myself from certain family functions and not be yes. present there yes. so that I'm not a target. I'm not going to let, let myself yep. be a target. That's how I'm going to self-care myself is, yep. hey, thanks, have a nice time, but uh, I'm not going to be there. Yep. Because believe me, I'm a target. Yeah. Well, but see, we're, we're surrounded with people who don't have a program and who are warped. Oh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just the truth. And families yeah. are a, a, a potential cesspool. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you, you're, you're attempting to be helpful. You're attempting to have relationships. But you also know that there are some unhealthy people. It's not your job to make them healthy. So you just stay out of their way. Oh, indeed. Not, yeah, stay out of their way. Yeah, stay yep. out of the narcissism and everything yep. that goes with it. Yep, yep, yep. And, and learn, it's a difficult lesson and it's a recurring lesson, not to take life personally. Reality is not personal. Oh my God. I mean, one of my uh, participants in my workshop expressed that about two years ago. I'd never heard it before. Don't take reality personally. Well, you know, I may have to pull out my old Red Skelton tapes and Johnny Carson tapes just to get a few more laughs. Well, you know what? Those those were good days, at least by our memories, right? <laughs> There's the a day I heard Red Skelton. That don't know who Red Skeleton is. <laughs> well, the day the day I heard he passed away, it was October, September <laughs> October of ninety seven. I called in sick. I was in mourning. A little true story. Wow. Yeah, all right. Well, it's great that you've, by osmosis, absorbed some sense of humor, because then you won't take life so personally. Yeah. That's right. Thank you so much. In fact, my own spiritual director said to me, because I'm a heavy does it guy. I mean, that's my orientation is heavy does it. And he said, Herb, the sign of authentic spirituality is a sense of humor, especially about yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much. We're coming to a close. I want to invite you to pray the prayer of uh, St. Francis, which I'll put up on the screen in a minute. It's, for me, the prayer of transformation. Spiritual awakening is a fancy name for transformation. Or maybe transformation is a fancy name for spiritual awakening. Both are fancy names for change. That's what it really means, is change. And that's what we've been talking about all, all, all the time we've been together today, is change. How, how do I, I, I don't like my life right now. There's some suffering in it, and I would like to change that. How do I do that? Well, certainly by naming it, by analyzing it, the underlying sources, the exact nature of it. That's what Bill talks about. The values, the motives, the beliefs, all of the stuff in us that, we need a new pair of glasses. The glasses that we look through are corrupt. They've been ground improperly by our life experiences. I need to have a new um, optometrist <laughs> regrind the lenses so that I can see reality as it is and not as I am. See, most people see reality as they are. They project onto reality who they are. Then they're reacting to a falsity uh, and they suffer and other people do too. The whole point of step four through nine is to see reality as clearly as possible. We can never see reality as it is. 
because as soon as we see it, we've corrupted it, whatever it is. And of course, if you have any background in science, you know that in fact, as you look at something, you actually change the reality that it is, which is mind boggling. But be that as it may, we can only do the best that we can. And there, there's the consolation to the human person. There's the consolation to the perfectionist. I can only do the best that I can. And that's the benefit of the serenity prayer. Well, you've been wonderful. You guys are the ones that stuck it out to the end. <laughs> Thank you so much. Please join me in this prayer of transformation, this prayer of change, this prayer of awakening. This process, listen to the process, listen to the promise, listen to the turning. We make a commitment in step three to turn. We take the actions of steps four through nine to turn and to realize that we have been turned from my self-centeredness to other-centeredness. It's a process I uh, begin. And it's a promise that I experience. Please join me in unison. You're all um, muted, so you're welcome to pray out loud or silently or not at all with uh, an attitude of aligning with our community. Lord, make me a channel of your peace that where there is hatred, I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is error, I may bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds, it is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. Eckhart Tolle, in his book, The Power of Now, at the very end of it, or excuse me, in some place in it, he says, the secret to life. Sounds pretty ominous. The secret to life is to die before you die and realize there is no death. It's a powerful meditation. To die before you die and realize there is no death. Steps four through nine are the death of the false self, like we've discussed during our time together today. The death, the deconstruction of the false self, so that the authentic self, the true self, the real you, the core of goodness, can manifest and live our lives and flourish. Thanks so much, everybody.